Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's completely, it's unnecessary. It's a podcast. <laughs> it's a completely unnecessary podcast. For two, 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 Tuesday? Two Tuesdays in a row, Ian? February 23rd, 2016. It's Ian Ferguson. Howdy. It's Pat Contry without the delay. We got, we got a, a lot of fun for you tonight in the world of modern gaming, retro gaming, film topics, YouTube galore. Q&A, talking about the 30th anniversary of Zelda being released in Japan on the Famicom Disk System. Street Fighter V, people are disappointed, maybe upset about the lack of modes. The Super Russian Roulette NES game on Kickstarter. Konami placing expiration date on Metal Gear Solid V currency. Fucking A. Just like they do on like Chuck E. Cheese points. Um, the Click of Chameleon short follow-up, that's fun. A Rampage movie? A Trog Prototype, undubbed VGA slab for 30000 Lots of other good stuff. My quick Deadpool review, your Q&A. Ian, what's going on? Not a whole lot. I, uh, But I did reach a, a, a critical level over the weekend with my comic book collection where I kind of looked around and realized, holy fucking shit, I have way too many of these things. So... Um, trade, I, trade paperbacks, my friend. I, well, no, believe me, I know this. That's how I, I. That's how I started, and then as soon as you buy one single issue of fucking something you want to keep up on, you're doomed. So I started to blow through um, the stuff that I needed to catch up on. Most most enjoyable was, uh, and this is going to be funny because people think I fucking hate DC. Uh, most enjoyable was uh, Gotham Academy, which is Marvel fanboy. Yeah. Um, and Gotham Academy is to, to give it a brief description is um, it's kind of like high school boarding school like drama it's funny it's dramatic but they are also detectives <laughs> they run into um, superheroes from the DC universe bad guys from the DC universe and it weaves a really interesting story and creates a good setting and uh, it's probably the easiest. I was ever able to sit down and just read eight issues straight through. Um, it was compelling, and uh, that's great. So I've got a lot of things left to tackle still. I don't know where I'll go next. Um, probably something Marvel, and then back to my huge backlog of DC, because, you know, Marvel fanboys keep that on the side. Sure. Um, how's the gym been? You go back to the gym at all? Yep. I couldn't go last week because of... Uh, shuffles in the schedule but i started i went back the weekend i had my trainer appointment on monday um i'm not quite admittedly going as much as i would like to i mean i I, i've let myself down the past two weeks but uh this week hopefully i'll turn stuff around it's funny that we did the the q a topic about uh some quick you know getting in shape advice for noobs last time and all the the amount of people that made it an opportunity to take a shot at me and my weight and me being fat was absolutely hysterical. Well, I, fa- I, I didn't even look at the comments I just thought on that as hell. I'm fairly certain there was about a billion comments like that aimed at me, too. No, no, I, no they're actually, against you, they're actually funny. Like, oh, Ian, if Ian gives me drinking advice, I'll take it. There's stuff like that, or if it involves drinking. But for me, it was just an opportunity to say, Pat's fat, 
uh, Pat doesn't look that strong. It was just funny because it was just like, wow, I've had people come come at me like that about my weight since like high school when I was fat. <laughs> so it was just, uh, oh, it was just, it was whatever. Just We're going. It was just entertaining. Um, besides that, the book's getting finished up this week. Thank freaking God. I'm just going back one more time to get rid of them. Um, some, some, there's some that are a little bit run a little bit long and are crunched. So I'm just deleting out sentences here and there. But for the most part, just making sure that the screenshots are all proper for the book and that the carts are all, you know, all the cart images are there because we're talking, you know, 750 of them. Then I, there could be a screw up here or there. So that'll get done. I'll, I'll start getting the digital versions out by end of the weekend or early next week. And this is a leap year, Ian. So there's a February 29th. Oh my god, I've got that, an extra day to get that rent check ready. 366 days this year. Woo! Mm. Uh, and other than that, uh, I'm going. Before before we have a sponsor, I'll be going to Retro Spill Messen in Norway in the middle of May. Did I did I say that right? Retro Spill. I did say that correctly. It's a Norwegian retro. I think it translated retro game show, and that's in the middle of May. So if you're in the Scandinavian area and want to come out and see me, I'll be there uh, in the middle of May. It's at retrospillmessen.no. The no is for not no, but for Norway. So thanks for having me out. That's going to be a, a fine time. I'll find a Viking wife and call her my own when I get out there. It's going to be a great time. All right. And we have a word from our sponsor, <laughs> Embracewear. Hey, guys. Jerry here from Embracewear. Hey, we're Jerry. inviting anyone interested in providing us with feedback on upcoming games we're working on to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're at slash Embracewear on each. So, for instance, twitter.com slash Embracewear. We post screenshots of games and apps that are in development, welcome beta testers, and we often give away redeem codes. We look forward to hearing from you. And Jerry told me today we might get a little new copy next uh, next podcast, and they're working on a new game. What? What? Yes. What? So that should be interesting. Well, thank you for being a proud sponsor. It was like four months now, just about, yeah. almost. So that's cool. And Jerry is going to be attending Retro Spill Medicine in Norway. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so that's going to be cool to see him. And uh, Jerry's a good guy. He's one of he's one of my besides being a uh, patron of the podcast or patron of the podcast. He's a super patron as well. So he's a double patron. <laughs> so good for that. Um, so let's. Let's kick off the uh, podcast with uh, something pretty interesting, an actual retro gaming topic. Um, uh, there's a homebrew that is currently being kickstarted. It's finished. They're just they're kickstarting it. Uh, it's called Super Russian Roulette. Or Roulette. And uh, I don't care. Um, and there's a number of reasons why this is interesting. Um, so the game is basically it uses the zapper. Uh, not a lot of homebrewers use the zapper, to my knowledge. I'm I'm not even sure. I don't know if I've any. heard of one that yeah. has done that. Exactly. Um, and what the game invites you to do is sit around a table with friends, with an NES in the center, and a CRT TV uh, sitting at a spot, uh, because uh, the CRT TV gets filled up with a cowboy, a trash-talking cowboy. <laughs> and there is... A, a bullet in the barrel of the gun, and you pass the gun around, and you each take turns pointing it at your head and pulling the trigger. 
Um, and then, you know, uh, obviously someone dies and then it, 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 it lessens the pool. And I guess the objective of the game is to just, you know, get down to that last game of chance one on one with whoever and, uh, you know, see who, who wins. Um, they, they show it as being done as a drinking game. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I can imagine this being fun in a lot of appropriate situations. So the interesting thing is that the cowboy, uh, on the screen is insanely well animated. Uh, and it's for, a big, it's a big it's, sprite. It's a huge sprite. We're talking like most of the screen, way bigger than a punch out sprite, like two or three punch out sprites. Takes up most of the screen, does things like kicks his feet up on the table, um, and has over four minutes of speech, which is absolutely freaking insane. Yeah, I mean, thinking about the NES games that would have a lot, you have was like Big Bird's Hide and Speak has a decent which amount, is a pretty impressive one. Yeah. Um, Super Jeopardy has some top, talking Jeopardy, but most NES games you have well below thirty seconds, like well below right. of audio, with those couple of exceptions. So uh, that's impressive in and of itself. Obviously, the game isn't that deep in terms of gameplay and having different stages and things like that. But there's a lot of, like you said, there's big, there's big animations, big characters. Uh, supposedly there's some rudimentary AI involved. I'm not sure how that's going to work, but like the cowboy can taunt you or 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 I guess cajole you into if you're not if you're not if you're taking assign to... you uh, silly nicknames. Yeah, so there, I mean, there's not much you can do with Russian roulette. It's a game of all right. It's a game of chance. You have one in six chance of losing. So it's a, at least a way of I guess spicing it up a bit, making it fun. Yeah, I think what's interesting is 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 this is something that would be fun in a party situation, especially after a couple of drinks, but it's also a really great showcase for what people can do with the NES today. And if anyone's thinking, well, the zapper's not really being used, it's just an input device, you know, the, the button on the trigger, there's actually a moment where it shows uh, the one guy um, shooting the teddy bear sitting next to the uh, sitting next to the cowboy. So, <laughs> and he gets upset, right? Yeah, he gets upset. So, uh, yeah, I don't want this to come across sounding like an advertisement necessarily but it's really uh, cool what's going on here and I, I just felt we just felt like it, it should be mentioned sure uh, to see how the, uh, the, the limits can be stretched it's a one megabyte cartridge for an NES game is okay. huge yeah I mean that's and obviously that's most of the voice samples making that big. sure um, so yeah if you look at the the ROM boards actually if that's the prototype ROM board it actually has the symbol on it which is cool like the symbol company has like, the wings on it so it's pretty pretty interesting um, they have a Hellbent for Leather Special Edition, which is funny because it, it's just an f- expression from the old West. I haven't heard that in forever. Yeah. And you actually, it would actually come with uh, the cartridge and like a leather uh, holster yeah, for the game. That's, like, that's just really cool. That's just a cool idea. I mean, I just like the idea because a lot of these homebrews to me seem, I hate to say, well, cash-ins, but um, they're not really doing something that different. A lot of them. Some are. There's some that... I've seen that, wow, that's something different, but some are just like, okay, it's an action platformer that it's like, all right, there's a ton of those on the system. Or maybe they ape other games. That's kind of what I've seen the most of. They ape other games with a small twist, and that's fine. It, it's cool to see new stuff, but it's inter- no matter how simple this might be, it's interesting to see someone put so much effort into something so simple, and it's truly unique in the world of homebrew. Yeah, there's only like, what, 14 Zapper games on the NES, so it's nice to have... Get another one in there. Why not? Yeah. Sure. Even though you're not doing a whole lot of TV shooting. Fuck it. I'd rather play this than Bandai's shooting range. Yes. So uh, check out the Kickstarter. They actually selected it as a project we love. Uh, I wish I did that for my book, but that's okay. <laughs> so uh, so uh, the, one of the other cool things real quick is that if you go do a certain tier, you can actually get your own voice in the game. 
and they'd actually like give you instructions for how to insert it or I think you can actually send it to them so you can actually have like your own character of yourself so that's a cool idea like a, a truly customized uh, sort of game so yeah they, they'll even give you like your own intro screen too so shoot that teddy bear check it out super Russian roulette not a sponsor but so here's um this is interesting because we've talked about you know quote unquote esports and, and professional gaming and stuff like that a number of times um, and we have varying opinions on it. <clears throat> we agree that I think it takes skill. Yeah, obviously, it takes skill. skill. Be a good gamer. It's not. It's not necessarily. We, uh, I think we both kind of agree. It's not really an athlete. Anyways, the Utah Jazz, uh, the small forward Gordon Hayward, um, good player, ha- has come out. Yeah, averaged nineteen point three uh, points a game according to this. Um, he's come out and said that uh, professional gamers train just as hard as professional athletes. And it's weird because on some levels I, I agree with him, but I feel like the phrasing is, is odd. And he's um, a, well, he's a gamer. Sure, he is a gamer, yeah. um, and he he plays. I believe he plays some things competitively as well. So my take on this is that yes, to become good at to become very good at a certain video game whether you are chasing an asteroid's high score or you've spent eight years of your life on Street Fighter 4, um, you are you are putting in a serious time commitment. I'm not sure that a lot of people understand how much of a time commitment that sort of thing is. Um, but is it as athletically vigorous? That's the sort of thing that I don't know. I st- what I'm saying is I'm not trying to take one thing away from from pro gaming or, or athletes, but I still think it's just... I hate the term because they're both fucking fruit, but it's apples. It's kind of an apples and oranges sort of thing. Yes, they both take extreme amounts of dedication, but I don't know that you could consider that same sort of rigorous training the same as athletic rigorous training. Uh, no, I. this is the way I look at it. In terms of pro gaming... You have always have in certain um, genres, you have the game du jour or a few, you know, so you have League of Legends is always big for what the MOBA genre. But for something like, well, you have StarCraft 2 for the, for the strategy games. Before that was the first StarCraft was a game played. Street Fighter 5 is going to be a big one. It's been Street Fighter 4 for the past, what, it's been out for what, six years, Street Fighter 4? Eight. Eight years, okay. But in terms of these all these games, when they come out, they start running tournaments for these games. Relatively quickly, correct? So when Street Fighter V comes out, you're going to have tournaments later this year, probably for, I'm assuming. Well, yeah, and I'll, touch, I'll touch on that during our Street Fighter topic. But um, So you have people, the, the moment the game comes out, people start playing it to train to be a professional gamer. And I'm assuming that for uh, these strategy games that are played, for whatever add-ons come out or expansions come out for this for these fighting games, uh, for, for games like... Um, uh, like Call of Duty, is there, any, is there professional Call of Duty players? Probably, I don't know. But the whole point is that when these games come out, there's no such thing as a professional, really, as they start until these tournaments begin. That's what establishes professional in these, is that are you good enough to make it and get paid at these events to qualify and do it? It's a totally different mindset to me versus training to be a pro athlete. Because when you're training to be a pro athlete, first of all, you have to be uh, gifted to start. Uh, certain sports. Uh, you can be a, a, a great player, but there weren't that many great players in basketball below six feet tall. Talk about Spud Webb, Muggsy Bogues, 
maybe one or two others, and then you pretty much run dry of guys that were in the league that were successful below six feet. You have to be genetically gifted uh, to be a good football player, uh, especially especially football, especially basketball. Baseball, you can get away with it. Uh, hockey, you can get away with it a little bit less, but you still got to be big. You got to be gifted uh, to begin with. And then it requires, you know, if you want to be a pro basketball player, you better start when you're six years old. Uh, you better work hard at it. You better work your ass off in high school. You better work your ass off in college. And even then, you know, in basketball, there's only literally uh, in the NBA, you're talking 300 players in the NBA, something like that. That's a very low amount. Yes, there's pro players in Europe, but you want to get to the NBA, and you're, you're trying to go for 300 spots. And if you can't get into that, you can't get into it, and you're, you're done. Um, so I think there's a, there's the, the risk, the reward risk is a lot higher for these athletes. Uh, just because you can work out your whole life uh, for your shot. You can be awesome in college. You get an injury. Uh, your knee pops. You're done. You're fucking done. All right. your, your 15 years of training, you got absolutely nothing to show for it. Nothing. Um, so not that's not to disrespect a pro gamer, but to get into pro sports, to me, is a lot less uh, versus to get into pro, pro gaming. Just because of that. I mean, a lot more. Uh, yeah, that's, what, that's what I mean. There's a lot... There's a lot less you got. You have to look into it. I would almost. I, I agree with you on on most of these points, but I would I would counter it with two things. Um, for certain things, I believe let's let's use like something like Street Fighter for example, Street Fighter Four. Um, you do have to, I believe, have an innate skill for some of these games. Once these games got to legitimate combo systems that utilized single-frame links that were, we're talking like one frame and a 60-frame-per-second game, your fine motor skills and dexterity have to be pretty well fucking developed. I don't have good fine motor skills for various reasons, and Mm -hmm. because of that, there's a certain level that I would reach for the fighting game and not be able to continue, whereas someone else with with better fine motor skills could. Um, So... I'm not saying it's the same, but... I, well, I, that'd be the same as a pro athlete that's gifted. If you're 6'5", yes. 240 pounds, you have a lot better chance of getting the NFL okay. than me. And the only other thing I would say is that it, I don't necessarily agree 100% with it starts when a game comes out. Most of these people who play fighting games, let's take Daigo, for instance, who you know I believe is starting to stream Street Fighter Five this weekend and is constantly at the top of tournaments, has had n- numerous famous matches... Um, you're not starting just at Street Fighter 4. Yes, you're starting with a new system, but the dexterity and the skills you've learned to look for combos is something that you've been working on since the modern era, probably, of Capcom fighting games. So it's not like it just starts at Street Fighter 4 and then there's eight years. These people have been playing since, like, Street Fighter 3, King of Fighters. These are all skills that they learn from those games that transfer to newer games. Sure, but for that, this is different than, to me, other than a sport because you're you're starting off anew. Like the pool starts anew. Whether or not some people have an innate advantage, okay. the pool starts anew. You sure. can be a 15 year old that this is their first game, and if they're good enough. Maybe they can be a pro gamer versus like someone that's 30 that's getting into it, and they've played uh, three other games professionally before that, and they're going to get into Street Fighter Five. There's, I mean, am I saying something insane? No, I, I'm not. I'm not looking at you like you're insane. I'm. I'm, mulling, I'm just saying. I'm, like, I'm mulling it over that's in my the, head. That's the difference between that and, <laughs> and, and and a pro sport. Where a pro sport, you have to have you have to have trained at that sport for literally almost your entire life in order to be a professional. I'm not, I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying that the skills carry over 
and even though you might be learning new systems and new techniques, you, it's not it's not like you're starting fresh. And yes, a 15-year-old who starts on Street Fighter 4 is likely going to have trouble in the higher tiers against people who have been playing fighting games their whole life. But they might have that better reactions versus someone who's 30, 35. That's, that's potentially true. Because I think <laughs> you brought it up, and I've read it, that when you get to your late 20s, your reactions start going down. Yeah. You know, that's just the way it is. So it may be tougher for me to get started in in a fighting game, but maybe but maybe I could be a pro gamer at a League of Legends, you know, because you don't need that twitchy reactions as much, you know, so maybe I could be a pro at that. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. In some aspects here, I'm simply playing devil's advocate, but sure. I just, it's interesting I, to mull over. I just think it's interesting that, that um, this goes back to the whole um, Twin Galaxies thing where Gordon Hayward felt the need to defend gaming when it's silly, especially nowadays when you talk about all the prof- all the professional athletes nowadays, and these are a lot of guys that unfortunately are younger than us, that these guys have been playing video games all their lives. Like it's a part of them. Like when they go out, they always say, "Yeah, we're in the hotel room or we're hanging out in the locker room." They they, they play video games. They they play sure. sports games, and they, they they're not like it's not they're not divorced from it. So going back to when we were kids, I knew lots of kids that played sports that were big athletes. They also played video games. It wasn't like one or the other. Yeah. And for, well, that's, for a, that's been a common misconception forever. Yeah. And so for, for pro athletes, I don't see it a big shock that to say, oh, I play video games and I'm a pro athlete. That's not like a, a big deal anymore. We talked about it. <laughs> right. You're, you're not a unicorn. We talked about it uh, in Conan O'Brien a year ago when they had uh, Marshawn Lynch and Gronkowski playing Mortal Kombat with Conan O'Brien. They're all having fun. It's like, yeah, why wouldn't you have fun playing video games? Well, and like one of my favorite things to pop in and watch every once in a while is a little bit of uh, Xavier Woods up, up, down, down, where like yeah, sure. him and all the WWE uh, stars sit around and just play games with each other. I mean, you know, this is you can definitions of athletes aside. Um, there are other athletes, oh, I, I, pro I, wrestlers. I agree too. I'm I'm just referring to the people who will probably take umbrage with that. Um, yeah, it's fun. It's, it's kind of there's something kind of fun about watching these people do that, though. Anyway, so I guess we're in agreement for the most part. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, as always, we're kind of somewhere. I just think it comes back to again, it's the risk reward sort of thing, and the amount of time put into it too. You know, I I I just don't like when people are so quick to to have them be totally equal when it's like sure that's sort of disrespectful to someone that's worked twenty years to get somewhere. And then still is toiling and may not ever see it. And I think it can go both ways. So, all right, here's here's a good one. This is likely to be short, but if as if Konami couldn't dig their grave any deeper or swallow more fucking lead, um, they have put it at least in Japan. It has not been announced for over here yet. Japan. Uh, <laughs> speaking of Street Fighter, um, Konami is putting an expiration date on their in-game currency for uh, Metal Gear Solid 5. Now, what this in-game currency is used for is um, it's used to purchase, uh, I believe, what the, what are known as far-out bases, which are like extra home like home bases in the game. I don't know a whole lot about it because I haven't played it. I'm going to admit that up front. But this expiration date is for no matter whether or not you earn the coins in-game or if you purchase them with your own fucking money. The expiration date is six months, and from what I've heard from people who have played, you have to grind your ass off to get anything in this game in terms of freebie coins. So, what you're doing is is is, is I, I why do I keep referencing Greek mythology? But you're like Sisyphus rolling the fucking uh, uh, boulder up the hill, and it constantly falls down. Then you do it again, and it falls down. 
you can grind, but as soon as you reach this level, all those ones from six months are gone again. So what that does is basically say, buy enough coins to buy the shit you need now, mm-hmm. give us the real money, you're never going to get it with the free currency. Or it could be some sort of weird way to want to keep people playing regularly so that they want to make sure you are still hooked. You don't want, you know what I mean? Like, remind you, hey, you better play this game because your currency's going to yeah, run out. But what if, what if some guy doesn't have a fucking calendar where he's written down, okay, this is the start date for my currency, and nice. ends up like short, you know, an X amount, gets it, and then goes back and is like, oh. Is this oh, like I guess not. Is this like skee ball tickets? You better use them or else you can't get that spider <laughs> ring. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it's like. <laughs> I I just think that's that's pretty pretty funny. Um, well, well, people were complaining about this before, weren't they? Did we bring this up on the podcast a few months ago? Well, we brought up the whole in-game currency thing, but we didn't bring up the fact that it was going to fucking expire. I just don't, I just don't understand why. Why Konami? What are you What are you doing? Konami doesn't care what they're doing. Konami is making blatant cash grabs. And, and, and they're, it's their last attempt to make blatant cash grabs at the console gaming market, which they obviously are, do not give a shit about and are probably exiting almost completely. Here's the... I guess this was from a notification. MB coin validity period. Steam Steam version. I don't know if this is a console version as well, but it said, uh, thank you for your continued patronage of Metal Gear Solid 5, the Phantom page. It's funny how these were patronage. We wish to inform all users situated in Japan... That uh, MB coins in the PC Steam version of the game are only valid for a six-month period, regardless of whether they are purchased or received for free in-game. That uh, I mean, that's just absolutely insane to me. Additionally, we've been made aware that depending on how the MB coins were obtained, some us- users may have received MB coins without knowing about the validity period. That's even better. <laughs> so you may have gotten them like five and a half months ago and not even realized it. And be like, oh, okay. Um. Oh, okay, this is good, though. It said, as, as such, we have reset the validity period on all MB coins you just have received, and if not yet used. Okay, so that's good. So, oh, that's the silver lining. Well, that's like, if you if you did it six months ago, didn't realize it, you you get six more months at least. Okay. Okay, that's the, that is the silver lining. Because they would have been totally shit if they announced this retroactively, and you were screwed. That's like a fucking half-hearted hand job, like... That's ridiculous. Well, is this thing, is this thing as, as bad sex or bad pizza? I always say yes, there is. I'm sure there's such a thing as a bad fucking hand job. Yeah. <laughs> you, you wear like a rusty claw. <laughs> I don't know. But Konami, I, I, I don't have much to say about you other than like, I just don't know what's going on with you guys. It's like you're actively trolling everyone. And at this point, it's like, I don't know. Just don't, just don't, just don't do anything bad with the Hudson Soft properties or then we're going to, you, you'll well, see. They already every- have nothing. Well, that's be- well. That's better than than destroying them and having me fly over to Japan. Well, don't worry, they'll be pachinko machines with uh, you know bonk on them. I, soon I would I would buy that. At least that you're doing something, keeping the old old bald headed little guy alive. You're a fucking slave. Um, let me start here because uh, I have to defend myself first. Um, I am not an active participant in the fighting game community. I love fighting games. I love to play them. I love to play them with my friends. I buy almost every fighting game that comes out. And I always find a way to have fun with it. Um, one of my favorites would be Arcana Heart 3. So, naturally I was quite excited to see Street Fighter V uh, coming up, get a release, and uh, I purchased it. And Street Fighter V is a barren skeleton of a game. Um, you don't have a lot of modes. You don't have a... And I'm going to go with the negative first, because there are positives here. 
You get a very simple story mode that is about three to four one-round matches against the easiest AI you've ever played. You get some artwork uh, that kind of prologues the story that's to come that is of mm, questionable quality. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. Uh, You can beat that whole thing in about an hour, if that. Um, You get a survival mode that is really actually awesome. Um... Every time you beat a character, you know, survival mode is generally where you have one life bar and you have to see how many how many uh, opponents you can take down. So, um, the survival mode is really interesting in this one. Depending on the level, you have to last a certain number of characters. In between rounds, you can spend some of your score, so you lose your chance at a high score, but you can get buffs like uh, health or, um, you know, attack up. You also get a simple training mode, but there are no combo lists. And then you get your online. You get the choice of ranked, unranked, and uh, battle lobby. Now, in ranked and unranked, you actually have to go into an options menu and select your favorite character. And you don't get a choice to change your character before your ranked or unranked or casual matches. What? And if you want to play as a different character, you have to go back into the options and change your favorite character. Why? Um, I'm assuming the idea was a misguided attempt at getting players who main characters, which is what most serious players do, uh-huh. to have them skip the also inconvenient three button presses it takes to pick your character, pick your color, and go. Because when you play, the game hovers your cursor over the character you last played as. So, I mean, I mean, I don't know why. Uh, what if you want to want to fuck around and, and try a different character? Well, then you get Battle Lounge. Now, Battle Lounge, as you might think, would be a multiplayer lobby of many people that you could play against, right? Well, they're going to fix this in March, but as of right now, uh, your Battle Lounge is one-on-one against one other person. You cannot have more than one person in I mean, there. You mean literally one other person? Yeah. It's like a private club, just you and another person. Right. Now, they're going to change that to have up to eight, but like, as of right now... It's a champagne now, room. As uh, of right uh, now, yes. Fighter exactly. Now, at least in this one, you, you can f- you can set it to... You can set it to um, you can set it so that you get character select before each round. Oh, thank you for for including that. Yeah, that heavy. I know it's a heavy laden option to program that. So, it's it's barren, and I think they're kind of taking a Splatoon model to this, where I, I, Splatoon came out barren, and they dripped the content over the next couple months, and what you ended up with was a fantastically full game. Much like Splatoon, and this is where I'll state the positives, at least with Splatoon, the core gameplay was very good. And in Street Fighter V, the core gameplay, as of right now, in my opinion, is fucking outstanding. All the characters feel good, they all look good, they all play interestingly, long-time characters like Bison have change-ups made to them. Um, So this is my guess, and then I'm going to let you react. Because I don't necessarily agree with this, but I think I know what Capcom's goal here was. Evo's coming up and the other big fighting game tournaments are coming up. They have a perfectly ready-to-go engine. They have perfectly ready-to-go characters. They released it in this unfinished form so that players who want to compete competitively can get in there, learn their characters, and compete in the tournaments. And meanwhile, everyone else, by around June, will have something resembling a more complete game, with things starting to drip out in March. Well, that's when the story mode's supposed to come out, in June. Except for the fact that the story mode actually seems lame. 
It might take an hour to two but this hours. Is, but this is the one thing you didn't mention, that there's no fucking arcade mode in oh, this I, game I, at this I, point. I, 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 I thought I did, but yes, there's no... I thought that was the first thing I mentioned. Yeah, there's no arcade mode against... There's no just straight run of, like, eight characters, best two out of three. That's insane. Yeah. That's fucking insane. Yes, for, it is. For not, not just a Street Fighter game, any fighting game, not to have the most basic mode of all fighting games that have ever come out. Yep. It's two, on, two out of three and defeat everyone else in the game. Don't worry, they're adding it for free in March or April. But like, what the fuck? Is that that hard to put into the no, game? it shouldn't have been. I, I was being sarcastic when I said that. I mean, they are doing it, but still, it's bullshit. So... Here's my thing, like, the arcade mode to me is is essential because it lets me practice a character in actual best best out of three matches. The survival mode is a shitload of fun, but they're one matches and you often have a buff or something that's making you stronger. When I want to practice a character, I at least want some sort of intelligence or artificial intelligence behind them so I can practice the combos that I'm discovering or the moves that I'm learning. I think a lot of people are going to say, well, then just use the casual the casual match option online because you don't suffer repercussions for losing a casual match online. So I think that's their that's their that I think that's going to be a lot of people's excuses. But here's the deal. When I'm playing against the computer, I don't get as psyched out. I actually get a chance to practice as soon as you put me with another human, whether anything's on the line or not. I get psyched out. I want to be able to have some time with a computer opponent before I go online and play. Not just that, but a, an arcade mode gives you the best opportunity uh, to learn the other characters you're facing because you have to play every yes. single one. And everyone plays differently. You might you might go online and not see a, someone use a, a certain character that much, so it may be hard to get used to that. Versus having a story mode where all right, adjust the difficulty to hard, and now I got to see how to defend against this character that. Yeah. No, or, so th- that to me is the most bi- mind-boggling thing out of all that they couldn't put that in. Sure. That, it's an incomplete game. It's an absolutely incomplete game. Uh, when, when I first heard about all oh, the story modes being added, I'm like, okay, that's fine. But once you say there's an arcade mode, which to me is a, a basic tenet of all fighting games, yeah. that to me is inexcusable. And they they couldn't wait another month to come out with it. I guess they couldn't. Uh, I I'll, I'll I'll well no they couldn't. I mean that's the thing. They for tournament reasons they couldn't. So, here's the thing. Capcom targeted the tournament audience instead of the casual market. And at this point, I don't know if that was the better idea of the two. I think it probably was for them, despite the outcry, despite the negative backlash against it. The people who are going to be playing in tournaments don't give a fuck about any of the shit we just talked about. Missing. Sure, but the, the market is much more bigger for the casual versus the people that want to compete in tournaments. Well... I don't know if they looked directly at something like Splatoon or other games, but they looked at maybe they looked at the Splatoon model and they said, "Well, that fucking worked for them." Yeah, but that's the difference between a third-person shooter adding maps and weapons versus there was f- five maps at Splatoon's launch and like very few weapons and one mode. Sure. And I'm not, and I, you know, I love Splatoon. Sure, it, it was about it, it was just as barren as Street Fighter Five, <sighs> and people didn't give that one that much shit. So yeah, but that's like having Splatoon, but not having not having a, a multiplayer mode. Like to me, this the arcade mode is like the core component of of a fighting game. It's core. Sure. Um, that said, I mean to talk about the game itself for a little bit. Man, is that a turn off? Um, I've had nothing but fun playing it against my friends and playing online. Uh, the new systems are fantastic. Uh, the V skill. 
Um, every single character has a power unique to their own, which helps against matchups. Um, a lot of them are fun. I play as Bison. I love the fact that Bison can grab uh, Ryu and Ken's fireballs and other people's projectiles and throw them back at him because that makes for some really interesting matchups. Overpowered? Overpowered? No. No, because against other characters, it's totally fucking useless. Um, and honestly, a good Ryu or Ken player can work their way around it. Um, the V-Trigger mode is great, uh, which uh, which powers up characters, but some it gives them a special move. My biggest thing that I love is they got rid of the fucking Ultra combo, um, and they brought back basically a simple EX meter. This time, I believe it's called the CA meter for the Critical Arts. Uh and my last parting jab, just real quick. Um, everyone got all up, uproar, in an uproar over the uh, lack of the Armika ass slap. The amount of fan service in this game is fucking insane. Cleavage shots, booty shots, this sort of thing. I mean, all of that stuff. I, uh, I just think it's weird that that's the one thing to complain about, and I think it's odd to think that Capcom thought that that's where they needed to draw the line. And maybe there's been a statement by Capcom that I didn't see, but in a game that has characters, some characters that are sexualized, um, you know, I mean, you can barely see Cammy's song at this point. It's it's basically just disappeared into her ass. Um, <laughs> I, I just don't understand why an ass slap would have been something to please the SJWs in the U.S. All right. I'm going to come a pro Street Fighter Five player to show you that it can be done. Even someone in their 30s can... can could do it just like those that pitcher that started pitching for the Tigers when he was forty. That was a movie. Remember that? My bison is strong for a completely low rank player. <laughs> okay, well you know I'll I'll start playing. I'll, I'll buy a PlayStation Four and I'll get it. <laughs> Shut up! No, you won't. And then I'll come over and, be, and beat you thirty times in a row. Anyway, uh, so <laughs> the thirtieth anniversary of Legend of Zelda uh, being released in Japan just passed. It was February twenty first, nineteen eighty six. If you didn't know. It's not, I'll say, often forgotten, but it was released originally on the Famicom disc system with uh, different music slightly, a different uh, music track uh, slightly. No, yeah, Zelda not. 2 is like a, Zelda 2, for instance, has a way different intro. Yeah. Well, slightly uh, different intro. And on the Famicom version, uh, you have some remnants that you see. For the most part, they're 99.9% the same games as when it was converted over to the NES, except it still came on, you know, uh, dislikes uh, noise. Uh, the one freaking peanut butter and jelly character, I forget the little guy, because he used to blow in the microphone to, right. to stun him. And that was taken out, but they didn't take out you know the, the wording for that from the game. Other than that, though, the games are exactly the same uh, games. So 30 years, I mean, we talked about this on the video game years, why it's such an important game. So I don't want to go over it that much, but just real quick, it really established on consoles the idea of having an open-world adventure game. Um and really, sort of, for the most, for the first time, remember, not many people in, in 80, when it came out in the U.S. in 87, not many people had a computer yet. Sure. So this is their first time playing a game like that that wasn't, like, you couldn't play something in the arcade like Legend of Zelda, obviously. Right. So it really expanded the idea of what a video game is to many, many people. Yes, there were games with an open world, RPGs like Ultima, uh, on, on the PC years before, but those were a lot more simplistic in terms of their, the art styling. Um, so this was colorful, graphical, the same reason why Super Mario Brothers is an important game, because it had a whole world you could sort of see and identify characters with, and that's the same with Legend of Zelda. For me, just to talk about some memories of Zelda, the thing is, is like, I don't dislike Zelda. It just, it's never grabbed me the way it grabs other people. Um, that said, like, Link's Awakening is one of my favorite 
Game Boy games, probably one of my favorite games of all time. Um, and I do like other entries in the series, like Zelda 2 particularly, and Wind Waker. What I remember about Zelda was, it was, it's one of the, f- 1 and 2, are, they're some of the only games I can remember actively enjoying watching. That, that were adventure games. I'm not talking like fighting games or racing games or, you know, wrestling games or whatever where you can get behind your friends and stuff like that. But my, this was when my parents were playing video games and, you know, the copy of Zelda 2 that I have is technically my father's and the Zelda 1, it might be mine. Um, but I used to sit there and watch them play it all the time and I was enthralled. And I don't know why I didn't jump in. Um, maybe because I sucked at games, but I, I loved watching my dad and my mom play through and seeing new areas. I remember for Zelda 2, they had a binder where they drew maps for the, the palaces in Zelda 2. And uh, it, even though I may not play every Zelda game or be the biggest fan, uh, it definitely does hold a place in my heart for memories like that. Yeah, it was interesting. I always go back to the time where we, we brought the game home. Um, I think it was Kitty City, because why wouldn't it be? Because Kitty City rules. And I was with my sister, and we both picked out the game... And I, I forget why we picked it out at the time. I'm trying to remember, because remember, this is before Nintendo Power um, was even out. I had Legend of Zelda before it looked fancy. Nintendo Power. Because Nintendo Power was a, was the summer of 88, and I think I got Legend of Zelda, I want to say, either right at that time or right before it. And I, I and I had a, I had a free Fun Club issue. Mm-hmm. I had that before, but I'm not even sure Legend of Zelda was in that final Fun Club issue. So anyway, so we picked out the game. It was gold. It looked cool. It just seemed like, I hate to say it, when you turn that game on for the first time, you, you got a feeling, like this sort of feeling like this is something special. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. When you let it run, we, let, we, we, we used to always let the games run for the, the demo screen or whatever. And when you, I love the demo screen in Zelda 1. And it starts scrolling. It turns... And then the music is obviously epic. It's one of the best soundtracks uh, on the NES. In those the, only like five different songs, um, and then it scrolls down. And you get this story, and then the game also comes with a, you know, the the fold out map, which has the story in there too. And in the manual about Impa, and then comes across Link, and she's dying or whatever, and you know, save the princess, get the tribes, and it really like the effort they put into that alone, having the drawn out character graphics in in the map and in the manual. Like they really were banking on this being something special. They knew they had something here. Oh yeah. Because even Super Mario Brothers didn't have any of this stuff, or any of these extras, extras that Legend of Zelda did. You know, the, the Super Mario Brothers manual is sort of yeah. There's cute little drawings, but it's nothing special. I, I love the cute little drawings. They're cute actually. though. Yes. They're cute. They're, the strategy about how to hop, hop on. on. Yeah, and yeah. that's the one that I always remember yeah. where you, to get the point. But extra le- the Legend of Zelda is like the first like. Is it within reach? <laughs> oh, thank God, it's in within reach. The manual's freaking big. For oh, yeah. an NES game, hmm? this was 40, 45 pages. Full color artwork, right? Full color artwork. 45 pages for an early NES game. There's not many. Most NES manuals are like seven pages, eight pages. And, and yeah, and there are ones that are huge RPGs, but this is, remember, an 87 game. You had every single description of all the different items, all the different weapons. So when you were a kid and you haven't played much video games before this, or this is one of the first NES games you, you have. And, you have, and you're have you playing a, a game like freaking Goonies 2 in comparison. I don't really like Goonies 2. Um, do. And when you come across a game like this, where you're like, wow, i got to learn what's what's a labyrinth and how that's different than the overworld. And just <laughs> and just learning that there's two different game modes in a game. Mm-hmm. When most games were like, okay, single screen games. Or you walk across, 
you know, you're playing Kid, uh, kid Ninja. You walk across, you kill a boss, go next. This is an entirely different game experience. Yeah, entirely different. That I think we take obviously we take for granted nowadays. You know, even he has to tell you how to get to the first first uh, labyrinth. He's oh, you know, Link's found the bridge. Cross the bridge to the Eagle Labyrinth. Yeah, let us hold your hand just to touch. Yeah, so yeah here's you get a little. Here's the map for the how to get to the second level because because otherwise you're not used to playing a game like this. You know, and, and here's the and here's the map. Which which is my originally, this is the original one I had as a kid, where I wrote down. I remember the empty spaces. Like there's where the letter is, there's where the heart is. Look, I even I even did little mountains. See how cute? Look, look at cute seven eight year old Pat. When uh, that is I am. when I, I hate it because we lost it. When we move, when we were still at the original Luna location, someone traded in a box copy of the game, and it had the map in it. And someone had gone through with colored pencils and as accurately as they could have filled in the entire rest of the map. But it was full of holes and falling apart, so we very carefully taped it to the wall because it was super cool. This has tape on I should probably redo this. So, I mean... What, what's funny about this is that this survived this map because I sold all my NES games when I was a teenager away. And for some reason, um, the, this map was within a bunch of random toys. To just this map alone, another my idea. So this survived the, my original map because I didn't write in any of the manuals, but I did write on this. So I'm glad that this survived because if I, that that would have upset me because I I did like arrows towards. Okay, this is where the blue gorilla is. He's like here in this square. Then anyway, so it's a magical game. Happy 30 years, and we're looking forward to finally in the NX. It's supposed to come out later this year. The new Legend of Zelda. <laughs> Actually, no, on the Wii U, but maybe on the NX as well. We'll see. Maybe a different one. Oh. Who knows. So this is funny simply because it shows how perception of things change so quickly. Um, and it shows how people who don't, who are working in an industry that they don't really understand uh, fear things. Um, so the creator of uh, Xbox Live, Greg Canessa, uh, said that when the service was put into place... Um, 2005? Yeah, thereabouts. Uh, people were completely terrified in the uh, within Microsoft that it was going to... Um, ruin basically the, uh, the, the, the console industry. Um, they were afraid that it was going to piss off publishers who thought that these 10 and $15 games they were offering were going to ruin people's, uh, desire to get these AAA games. Um, people, I guess at first did not see this as a separate market for indie games necessarily. Um, and, yeah, there was a lot of panic over it because at that point in time, they were still under the old model where, basically, they had to kiss the publisher's asses to make sure that they were getting the games for their systems and their exclusives, and they thought that this might step on their toes. So, obviously, that this has not affected anything. Um, it There was concerns that it might cause the price of... the value of a physical release game to, to drop. Uh, which which obviously has not happened. Um, maybe it should with the widespread available availability of digital releases now, especially for full big games. Um, but yeah, this obviously didn't have a catastrophic effect. Um, as a matter of fact, I think it's it's having a fairly good effect on on the games industry. Um, I think they overestimated. Yeah, they probably overestimated the strength of these five. <laughs> Ten dollar games, and um, they probably didn't realize that there's no way that 
you know, uh, Grand Theft Auto can come out and people won't spend sixty dollars on it. Right. Like, what, just because there's a, an indie game for ten dollars, they're not going to buy a sixty dollar game. No, I think people realize that they're two entirely different things. Yeah, they're two different universes of games. If there are people who are spending more money on something like Xbox Live or the PlayStation Network, which I am, uh, than on AAA titles, uh, it's not because of the service is ruining the retail market. It's because no one's putting out games that I'm I'm really interested in right now on uh, in, in the retail area, the sixty dollar level. Sure, I don't understand their 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 fear about physical games going down in value. When I always argue that physical games should be a little bit more than the digital version of a game, that doesn't make any sense. I think they meant at the time there was no there because there, when Xbox Live started, there was no. Let's just take Street Fighter Four for example. I don't know if the timing is right on this, but there was a physical release of Street Fighter Four, but there was no downloadable version of Street Fighter Four. So I feel what they're saying here is, and I, the fear is stupid and unfounded, but I think where they're coming from is that well. If there's these games that are $15 that people are playing, then to entice them to buy this physical release of a game, we would need to drop it to $40 to, oh, to, to, to close in the price points. Closing the gap. But I think people realize that if the games are uncomparable, unless there was a game just like Street Fighter 4 for, for $10, it wasn't going to matter. Uh, so it's interesting. And then uh, Knessa in this uh, interview stated that the 70-30 revenue split between developers and storefronts has become sort of an industry standard. Uh, Seventy thirty, that's eh, not terrible. I think that's what Apple does. I think that's what PSN does. Like, like he said, it has basically become the standard. Could it be eighty twenty? Yeah, probably. But seventy thirty isn't like you're totally getting screwed over. No. You know, uh, so that's fine for giving you the platform uh, to to come out with your games. Um, so, not much more to add on it. You know, now digital ain't going away. Some people think that the uh, Nintendo NX will only be digital and no physical games. That's a, a theory. I'm not sure it's going to happen, but that's a theory. Uh, so we'll see what happens. I don't think physical will ever, ever entirely go away, though. I just don't see it happening. Uh, I think if Nintendo's going to go digital only, they need to start putting things in their fucking systems uh, bigger than, like, I think it was like 500 megabytes in the Wii, and maximum size system you could get for the Wii U was 32 gigabytes. Yeah, like, I, I mean, to me, that's one that... Well, anyways. Yeah, we don't, I don't see it happening. I just don't. And plus, it will, there'll be less of, less of a reason to buy all the different bundle packages. Like, oh, this this one has Mario Kart in it. And yeah, you can put digital copies in it, but to have the physical thing, there's still a tangible... It's still nice to have a tangible object. I don't think that's ever going to go away. Okay, so this is something I tweeted out the past uh, past weekend. Well, Tommy, listen, this could be two weekends ago. I've been going to the flea market. I, I've been going to the flea market less the past, I'd say, six, seven months. Not just because I'm working on the book and doing other things, but the fact that past it's, two years, dude. I mean, your flea market... I mean, you used to hit them up on Saturdays and Sundays every well, week. Oh, yeah. I'd say three years ago and before, I used to go every Saturday and Sunday, which killed me. But I had to go every Saturday and Sunday because I felt like if I didn't, I'd be missing out on stuff. We're talking I did that up to about <laughs> up to about early early to mid-2013. A lot of times I was going every Saturday and uh, Sunday. Definitely definitely 2012 I was doing that. I probably started, started doing that in 2012. But there was a Since good two I years. I knew you until what I like. I said like I remember two three years ago. No, no I, but two three years ago I was just doing it every Sunday. But I've I've stopped going every Sunday. I, mean, I just went two Sundays in a row. But before that I hadn't gone two Sundays in a row in like three four months. And there were times where now I go, I, go, I try to go at least once a month. But if I the whole point is if I miss it nowadays, it's not like how it used to be. Like or I get like anxiety from missing. Oh, I'm missing out on deals. You know why? There are no deals anymore. Yep. None. It's drying up now. People can say, "Say, well, my flea market, I found something." Let me explain something to you. 
When I first moved here in 2009, within the first few months, I was finding so much stuff that it was like when Frank was with me, I had my backpack full of stuff I was finding, consoles, games, toys. Then I had two full bags, Comic-Con-sized bags, and then Frank had to carry a bag, too. I'm not even exaggerating. Even up no, in, you're not. Even in 2013... Uh, when my, my girlfriend at the time, she'd be here Sunday morning, I'd come back, and the look she, the look on her face she'd give me when I would just dump my backpack and a bag of crap, and she'd look at me like, what did you buy? And I'd say, oh, there's more in the car. And I wasn't kidding. I'd come back with, like, literally, you know, like, 50 pounds of stuff. Like, it was insane the amount of stuff. <laughs> a, bulk, a bulk amount of yes, American Yes, it was like uh, it was like I was buying <laughs> things by the pound. By so, a big metal scoop. So the point is this, is that it's not only that that's not happening anymore, is that I'm now I'm going to the flea market, and I said, hey, before the pocket, I said, Ian, I, got, I have a bag of miniolas that I got for a seven-pound bag for $5. You know, you go to the fruit and vegetable party, flea market. That was my best flea market deal <laughs> that I got the past month. Hey, but miniolas are delicious. That's the point, is that it's not like I'm even finding something that, I hate to say, it's not even like I'm finding non video game stuff that's good anymore. It's like, even that stuff's like, oh, I can find, like, a nice shoe rack or something that could be fun. It's like, even that stuff's sort of dissipating. Not at the same rate as collectibles like toys, comics, and video games, but even that stuff's, like, sort of, like, going to the wayside a little bit. Not to say I can't find good stuff. I did film a Flea Market Madness about six months ago. I filmed that. It was pretty good. I was like, oh, it's like the old days, kind of. But the old days ain't coming back. They're gone. Not, Not regularly. No, it's not like, um, like I said, I'd get up in the morning, and if I like got up late, if it was like 7.30, I'm like, holy shit, I just missed out on good stuff. I don't care anymore. If that happens nowadays, like, oh, I'll go back to bed and say, fuck it, I'll just go next week. That sort of impetus is gone to go to the flea market, which doesn't bode well. It doesn't bode well for a few things. It doesn't bode well for a flea market man series. That's gonna <laughs> You're going to run out of footage it's, eventually. It's going to be flea market quickies or flea market sadness, which some people on Twitter have said, which I've said in the past, too, when I struck at flea market sadness. I always have Frank, though. Uh, but it doesn't bode well for people that want to get into video game collecting and try to find good deals, obviously, because they're not there anymore. Now, obviously, you ask why. Obviously, there's a lot more people looking for retro video games. It used to be, it was usually me and maybe one or two others looking at the, at, the, at the flea market. Now, there's a group of, like, seven guys that are looking. But besides that, you have, obviously, you have the resellers looking, but that's not even the problem anymore because it used to be that there were four or five video game resellers at the flea market, like, three, four years ago competing with each other. And I would still find stuff. Now there's maybe two major video game resellers there. It's not that. It's the fact that all the other regular sellers look for the stuff too. That they are sort of they, they're sort of tapped into it to know that I should be looking for this stuff. This- that's, that's what happened. And I always say it's because of these fucking things. Smartphones. Ruined it for everyone. Yep. That's what happened. So demarcation line again about 2012 2013 when smartphones becoming more readily available and cheaper that's really when it started to happen um, because now you have a computer in your hand you can look up any price and it's not just video games you're looking for anything to try to try to flip it and so when you have when I go to a booth now and, and I see someone selling NES games for eight dollars each or that's not what they're specializing in but they happen to have like 10 15 NES games for eight dollars each it's like what can you do that's just what it's become yeah, I, I think one of the other things that killed flea markets, at least for me, and I feel like Grandpa Flea Market here, because I, I stopped going regularly in, like, 2005. 
Um, but I was going heavily from about 97, 98 up to 2005. Um, the, the literal layout in this touches on a little bit of what you said, the literal layout of the flea market has changed. Um, when I was going to flea markets, the majority of what was there, not all, but a good chunk of what was there were what I like to call garage sale tables. Mm -hmm. They are families or individuals who go, they set up, they sell the stuff that they don't need anymore. You can see a typewriter next to a World of Nintendo sign, which is actually how I got mine. Um, You know, you might, you know, it's just, it was a mishmash of stuff and it was fun. You'd go look at, this person might have candlesticks, but oh, holy shit, they've got a couple of Nintendo games here, you know? And um, at least in terms of the fun, that's gone because that was the fun of the flea markets for me. Now you did have your 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 locked in um, sellers. Uh, even as far back as '98, I had there was one huge video game reseller. But you know what? He was moving fucking quantity. I'm talking this guy's booth was not like a small little booth. I'm talking he had a chunk of the uh, flea market dedicated to himself and he had thousands upon thousands of games in there. Because no one else wanted them. So if you started buying NES games he w- and you were buying in volume, he'd just cut you a fucking deal. Because you couldn't get rid of them. Right. Well, I mean, there was always people there, but yes, it was it was a very specialized market. Um, so, you know, the, the amount of dedicated resellers was vastly less than, you know, the people just trying to sell some stuff, you know, where you could get lucky, uh, if you, if you kept your eyes peeled. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, like you said, basically what happened is, uh, the flea markets turned into essentially a, 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 a dusty, uh, cowboy town fucking commercial district where all you really have right now are these pop-up resellers that act as, you might as well call this one the video game store, and this one the shoe store, and this one the... The mattress seller. Yes. This is the book seller. And this is the... The, the CD is, seller. Right. And that's no fun. That's why I don't go, because that's the majority of what you see. Now, there are certain high and lower points. I, I'm thinking the spring's going to be, you are going to get a few of those weeks. We're going to get a lot of people clearing out and doing the garage sale thing. But again, I think people are less hesitant because... Uh, not that there aren't people that still want to get rid of shit, but there's a lot less, again, because smartphones and now it's like, oh, I might as well look this up. You never know. I see on the internet that a, that a Nintendo game went for $10,000 on Yahoo. You know? Uh, they might look it up and see, I can I can hold on to it, put on Craigslist. I was going to say, I think Craigslist has in part deterred a lot of the garage sale tables, too. They don't need to set up a garage sale at home. Oh, they can just they do don't it like do that. it at the flea market. They can just list the shit that they think they can get some money for but, on Craigslist and go. But even the new apps that, um, which I discovered and now I see commercials for, um, like, uh, what is it? Like OfferUp and Wallapop. Yeah, I've heard of OfferUp. I saw a I've commercial never, I've never for one. i never used it. And even on those, people want eBay prices on stuff. Not just NES games, but it's like, yeah, my NES game and, you know, I have an NES and four games. It might, you know, 90 bucks for best offer. It's just like, holy shit. And, and their you idea know, of best offer is 85 If this was Craigslist four years ago, that would be $30 yep. or less. It used to be that I could go on Craigslist, uh, keep your jokes aside, uh, and, and look for NES stuff or Virtual Boy or Game Boys. Remember, remember that the, the box Game Boy collection I bought? It was a top loader, 20 to 30 NES games, and those 50 boxed Game Boy games for $200. Crazy shit. And that was 2000 and what, 
12, maybe 11. That wasn't a huge, huge amount of time ago, but that shows you how much has changed in even five years. Oh, yeah. Well, that ain't happening again. Uh-uh. It just ain't happening. Um, it's just not. Um, so, uh, can it come back in some capacity? I don't know. Um, now, obviously, your mileage may vary. There might be a better flea market situation where you are. Or, again, it could be seasonal. Like, I think in March you might... Usually in the past, even though it was always pretty good, once it hit March or April, got a little warmer out, people cleared out, the local flea market was bigger, you got more garage uh, sellers. I think that can always happen, but I think overall the volume has shrunk. Overall, there's less less people doing it. But, again, there's always people doing garage sales, and that's always the best place. Yard sales and garage sales are still the best place to Or you look for, uh, sometimes, at least on the East Coast, they did call them flea markets, even if they were one time only... um, like churches and schools. Rummage sales. Yeah, rummage sales. Rummage flea sales. Market. Are- I, I mean, I, I, I've heard them called flea markets, but rummage sales, which is basically like a very large garage sale, somewhere between a garage sale and a flea market. And, uh, you know, generally there, even though people still have their smartphones, generally there you're more likely to find something cool. Sure. So uh, you know, pour one out for flea markets, everyone, because uh, the salad days are probably over. That's one of your favorite terms. <laughs> Salad? Salad days. I love salad. I like salad. I eat a salad every day. I try to. I don't have the energy, but we're going to do a quick follow-up to the Clico Chameleon uh, from the past week. Lots of activity going on on the good old Atari Age forums, following up on everything. I want, we want to talk about it real quick. I guess they've revealed more of the the, uh, the Kickstarter. is supposed to be launched Friday the 23rd of February. We're recording this. Excuse me, the 26th of February, Friday. We're recording recording this on the 23rd uh, right now. But they revealed some of their Kickstarter rewards. We went over them last week when they, when they revealed a few of them. Uh, they have a Platform Lovers Retail Bundle for 185 which is the Clico Chameleon. And then you get a choice of uh, uh, Sydney Hunter and the Carriage of Death from Collector Vision or Pico Interactive's Dork and Yimp game. Not familiar with, with, with that. There's an RPG Lovers package. There's a $210 beat-em-up lover's retail package, which gives you uh, Iron Commando or Legend, plus you get you get an additional controller. You get two controllers instead of one. And then you get into the Coleco, ColecoVision lover's retail bundle <laughs> for $225. Um, this includes a black Coleco Chameleon video game system, uh, a Coleco Chameleon USB controller, HDMI cable, AC adapter, uh, the packing game, and you get the Coleco... Vision Collection Number One, which has a whopping fifteen, 15. games on the cartridge, wow, and two exclusive USB ColecoVision style controllers. Fucking a generosity! So they're they're coming up with their own USB ColecoVision controllers. I'm sure, they're gonna be good. So they're doing that, and then a higher priced. I don't know why. For two hundred and fifty dollars, the Coleco, uh, excuse me, the Intellivision Lovers Retail Bundle. It's the system, HDMI, blah blah. blah. And then you get the Intellivision collection with, again, 15 games. And then you get... Guys, you give too much. The Electronite Intellivision game collection, which is a whopping six games. Six? Is that a typo? Not 60. Six games on their multi-cart. Six. Six, six. Just one six. And two USB Intellivision-style controllers. So... Obviously, the fact that there's only six games on the multi-card is horseshit. We got on the wait. Pa- so, so there's is there a fifteen cart for the Intellivision and a bonus six? Okay, cart? okay, yes. There's fifteen and a six. Okay. Oh, I didn't see Woo! that. that. That's why okay. it costs extra money. There's Holy a, so shit! So you're getting twenty-one games. Okay. My God. Whew. Okay. My heart. 
So there's a separate one. There's a 15-game one, and there's a six-game multi-cart. Okay, you get 21 whopping games, and that's why extra, an extra $25, extra cart. And then you get two USB styles. Uh, two USB and television-style controllers. And a game collection overlay. So this is my question. If you looked at a ClickVision controller and a television controller, they both have basically a D-pad or joystick, mm-hmm. two triggers, mm-hmm. and a keypad. Yes. With nine buttons. Mm-hmm. Plus your little pound and asterisks. Correct. Why do you need separate controllers for ClickVision and television? You're going to say the overlays are going to be different size. Can you just fudge something and come up with something that has a similar size then for the, fit the overlays on both? Do you really need to have different controllers for both? At this point, no, we don't. And, and the thing is, as I and I know someone out there will object, but honestly, the Intellivision controller isn't really looked upon as like the epitome of controllers. So, craft something with a number pad that is your look. If you're going to have to go out and create the molds for these and get these done, which is why I think a lot of people think that they're going to do some sort of contracting with At Games, which do the flashbacks. Um, why don't just make your own combo controller that has the number pad on it so that you can play. Sure. I mean, th- to me, that makes the most sense. I mean, now we're talking, not only are we talking more money, but now we're talking clutter. So now we need two of these Intellivision controllers. Now we need two of these ColecoVision controllers. Okay. Yeah, that, well, that's the main problem. The second problem is the fact there's only 15 games on these fucking multi-carts. We Which is about, absolutely fucking atrocious. We talked about in the past how these PS2 collections had a lot more for the Atari, Atari anthologies. and, and There's and an Intellivision collection that has, I think, 30 games on it. Could be if more. not more for the... It's huge for the uh, PS2. The at game systems, the Intellivision, ClickVision have more games than that, don't they? Don't they have like 50? They do, but I guess the sound emulation is shit. But, but the point is they have yes, more they games on it. Yes. So it's not like... It doesn't... Obviously, it's not a space issue. We know that. These are games that are two kilobits. Yeah. You know? <laughs> kilobytes, excuse me. So that's not... That's not a. That's not really what I want to talk about. Here's, I just well, want to bring it up. I, and I, here's here's my quick theory on this. There's not a lot of games announced for the system. My thinking is that if they string out these collections, at least they can say they have titles for a little while to come. Sure. So this is what I want to get into. The fact that I want to focus still because it's insane not to. The fact that the prototype it was a Super Nintendo Mini in a Jaguar shell. Someone. On February twenty first, on their Facebook say, on their Facebook page says, "Ask, will it be SNES Junior in our system? You guys still haven't clarified why you did that." Probably referring to the toy, toy fair. fair. Hi, Craig. We'll, this is a response. Hi, Craig. We will be making we will be making a formal response soon to this, explaining that it was not just a SNES stuffed into our shell. I can assure you that this is not what we've been working on the past year. We have lots more to show and prove yet this week. So is that an admission that it was a Super Nintendo in there, but there's going to be more besides but, Super Nintendo But in there? they haven't been working on it for a year because they were working on the VGS, which is not the Chameleon, which is not the thing that Carlson which they said. Which they threw out after they fired. Fan. They fired Carlson, so they threw out the, the design back in, what, November. So, to me, this is an admission that it was not just a Super Nintendo stuff into our show. To me, that's saying that, yeah, it was a Super Nintendo on our show, but there was other shit in there, too, that we want to tell you about. So, if you can play devil's advocate for them and say, let's just think that there was a Super Nintendo parts in there. What if you, what, first of all, why would you have tried to solder something else onto this? Or would that 
justify the fact that they can say, oh, it was a prototype because we had a random chip on the Super Nintendo board using a Super Nintendo card connector, using the AV out, using the controller ports because we're using Super Nintendo controllers. Playing Super Nintendo games that could have played on a normal Super Nintendo. Playing Super Nintendo games that will play only on a Super Nintendo because we don't have an FPGA that can play Super Nintendo games perfectly like the ones they were showing. So would that be enough to fudge it? I don't know. But the fact is now I think they're, they're starting to realize that we cannot deny it anymore. On the uh, podcast, the Retro Magazine podcast, called uh, Read Retro, well, that's, yeah, excuse me, Talk Retro, Read Retro's a website, the Talk Retro podcast, uh, which features a couple of fellows, and on this particular one, they had a guest, Daniel Kayser, who was actually the editor, he was the ex-editor-in-chief of Retro Magazine, who I've spoken to uh, before, um, he's the second editor, the first one was Brandon Justice. I believe that sounds like almost like a, a 80s action star name, but Daniel Kayser and, and the guys in the retro and the talk retro podcast started talking about the allegations and they came out and admitted point blank that, Oh yeah, it was the back of a super NES mini. They, they basically admitted that on the podcast, but, 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 but they said it was just because it was the most convenient thing to use as uh, an, uh, as an AV out and a, and a power out. Well, let's explain that. Let's just go over that for a single why that's insane. Because then you have to somehow figure out how to hack that onto whatever board you're using. Mm-hmm. But then you also have to then convert what should be a digital signal coming out of your FPGA. Because yes. remember, this is supposed to be an HDMI H- out only system. Right. And somehow think that that's going to be easy to hack that into not just a composite output, analog out, but also the super NES proprietary signal output. That's fucking insane. Right, this is not, they're making it sound like it's as easy as, well, we just took the board and plugged it into the back of an SNES Mini and, and, and we were off and running because that was the easiest thing to do. Bullshit. And like you said, I think the real big issue here is the, um, the, the, the conversion and the use of proprietary stuff. That's not the easiest way for you to do whatever you're doing. It's not. It's not, it's not easy at all. Um, it also, I mean, I, I, <sighs> So it also doesn't explain why the dimensions were the exact same when someone slid back a board to an SNES Mini to line the cartridge slot up with a Jaguar. It's almost precisely the exact same. Yeah, that can't be answered on the podcast. But here's the issue. Here's the problem with this, and this is something I brought up the last time. The big issue with this is they didn't open it. They didn't open it. No. So by the time we get to the Kickstarter... They're going to show us something different, and by not opening it, um, they can say this was what was really in there, and there's no way to prove it otherwise. And they can, I mean, that that's it. They, 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 there, there is no way to actually catch them on. The, we all know, but there's no way to there's, physically prove 100. percent Sure, we're at 99.999 repeating, but we are not at 100. percent One we of the one of the hosts of the podcast, I don't know which one. Remember, again, this is the official Retro Magazine, which is run by Mike Kennedy, uh, holding the water of the Coleco Chameleon talking about this system. Obviously, uh, the guys writing their checks, they have to talk about this in a positive way. They can't bash it like we are or be even try to be objective. But one of the people said there, hey, I was at the event. I saw it. You didn't. All right. Did you see the board? Because on the podcast, you didn't say you saw the board. The guy from Pico Interactive... Uh, try to ask to see the board, they wouldn't open up the, the console and show them the board. Which means that you saw exactly what we saw yes. in the picture. You didn't see anything more than we did. Or unless you are, and for some reason, being quiet about it, and letting it run now 
uh, over a week that everyone's saying that there's a Super NES Mini inside of there, and why haven't it? Why haven't you refuted it with actual evidence? You know why? There's no evidence to refute it with, and it's too late. Even if it was their own board, why wouldn't you have taken pictures or video of it at the event? There was zero, there's zero reason. Someone come at me with a valid one because it's not like they're going to get intellectual property stolen and a version of this you know churned you out before the Kickstarter. You can't steal intellectual property showing there the is, board. There is no reason for them to have not shown the board as soon as allegations were made. Unless, of course, it was just a Super Nintendo 2 underneath that. Uh, they would not have been risking anything. If there was a legit prototype, they would have been... They probably would have left the shell off, frankly. Yeah. Or it would have been easily uh, removable. The, well, the, one of the funniest things about this whole thing is that Mike Mike uh, Kennedy has sold clear Jaguar shells to oh, people. Yeah. He's made them. So he could have just put the prototype board... In a clear Jaguar shell, you could have seen it clear as day. It would have been cool. Yep. So, I mean, it's like, okay, even if it was a, the real board, you have to show a picture of it. You have to. And I'm not sure, the time. by the time you hear this, it's going to be one or two days before the Kickstarter starts on the, on the 26th, if it starts then. I don't know if, they, if they're running scared now. Maybe they won't be able to start it on time. Because maybe Kickstarter will see all this stuff and be like, we don't want this on our site. Because Kickstarter... Uh, will shut these down. They don't care. They they make so much money. They don't have to let every single Kickstarter on their site at this point without a real prototype. Well, and I I feel like I feel like one of the silliest things. Cough. cough. I feel like one of the silliest things that this Coleco Chameleon team did was not just drop it by constantly bringing it up and trying to refute what is obvious, they just keep generating yeah. more and more, they keep generating more and more attention to themselves. People will go see that Atari Age forum. People will go on YouTube and see our videos and other people's videos where if they just stopped fucking talking about it until they got to their Kickstarter, there would be enough people who didn't see this stuff. Uh, they could have even just said that it was a proof of concept. But they didn't. A proof of concept doesn't have to be a prototype. A proof, proof of concept could just be, this is whatever shit mock-up we have to show you that this is what we want to do. Right. They could have said, if they had come out and said beforehand, hey guys, we're still working on the board, we, we're trying to have it done soon, but you know what? We don't have the time, so what we're going to have is called a proof of concept, and it means that it's not what's going to be for sale, and it's just going to show you us playing Super Nintendo games, and yes, it is a board, a Super Nintendo board. We want to just show you uh, just basically how we want this to function. But and this what you what, can expect from what the you, games. What you can expect from the games, which are Super Nintendo games, but this is not what the final product is going to be, but it's a proof of concept. If they had said that up front, I think people would still have been a little leery, but they would have understood. Sure. But no, the whole time they said, we are going to have a prototype ready to show you. So I think they couldn't have said we have only have a proof of concept, because if they said we have a proof of concept, Kickstarter would have said, fuck off. You cannot do a Kickstarter for a video game system without real hardware, and a proof of concept is not a real hardware. And that's what it always hinges on. So, I, again, uh, it's just funny that at this point, it's all I think it's all smoke and mirrors to get to the Kickstarter, which we said last time. But, hell, why, why, do they, why do they need to rush it? If they've waited six, seven months for a real prototype and then said, we, we need the extra time, I think people would have been like, okay, sure. But now, the fact that this is the second failure of having something ready to go, a real prototype, I think that's it. I think, uh, you know, fool me twice, not going to fool me again. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I still I still feel like this could get funded, and that's going to be bad for the people who put money into it. But we'll we'll wait and see. At this point, yeah, I did, I just wanted to comment on the fact that the proof of concept thing came to my mind. I didn't think of it last week that they they could have said it was proof of concept, and I think there would have been a lot less of an issue versus saying it was a prototype. But they didn't, and now it's a much huger issue, and now it's too late. It's too late. It's too late to go back. The, the you know the genie's out of the bottle. They've so doubled down. They've doubled down. They tripled down. So. Actually, this next topic is a fairly interesting counterpoint. Um, to the Coleco Chameleon. Yeah, to the Coleco Chameleon. Uh, there's an interesting uh, Kickstarter. It's already uh, well-funded um, for uh, something called the Sinclair ZX Spectrum Vega Plus console. Um, it's a pretty-looking little handheld. Uh, it has 1,000 licensed uh, Spectrum games in there. It has room for you to add more Spectrum games. Um it's at about a hundred and twenty dollars U.S. money. It's about a, it's a hundred pounds, hundred and twenty, hundred and twenty-five U.S. dollars. Uh, you can play it in your hand. You can hook it up to your TV. The reason why this is an interesting counterpoint is uh, for less than the price of a console, you have a on-the-go version of what was a very fondly remembered computer with a huge. lot of with a huge game library. Many of them also fondly remembered. But here's the thing that I want to point out, and this is why something like this is appealing and succeeds, whereas something like the Coleco Chameleon is a, is a very different monster. I've said before, what's the fucking point with the Coleco Chameleon? And I mean, I don't understand what sure. market it's supposed to it's, it's supposed to fill. You're not running it on its own architecture. You, you're going to be using cores, supposedly. It has nothing to do with Coleco. It has nothing to do with Coleco. So basically, you're just playing homebrew games for other systems on a different system. This, however gives you access to games that you remember, but it does so without you needing the original vintage computer, and you don't have to go out and collect the games, many of them on media that was quite degradable. So this is actually, I imagine, I'm kind of interested, frankly, and I, I, I have very little experience with the Sinclair, minor experience. Um, to people who remember this, this was probably something that, is, that got eaten up. Um, it looks professional, it's its own machine tooling. Uh, they seem to manage that without breaking the bank. Um, it's a slick-looking console, and it's done. Not only is it... It's not just a prototype. It's yeah. done. Yeah, I think, I think obviously, obviously this is going to be an emulator. And obviously yes. the ROMs you can download all online. Mm -hmm. But it's really classy for them to go out and license a 1,000 games. I'm surprised it's that many. I, there must be one or two shareholders or one or two companies that somehow own all these, these the licensed Or maybe games. there's a couple, yeah. That rolled them all a up. A few big companies. That rolled that, them all up. Because yeah. that's insane that they got that many on here. Sure. To me, it's just, it's almost rewarding them that, uh, that okay, you guys did something really cool. It, it looks like almost like a PSP. It's a pretty big L L uh, LCD screen, too. Yeah. That was pretty sizable. You have, you know, four face buttons. You have additional buttons in case it's a computer game you probably need. So basically you have seven or eight buttons it looks like to play with besides a D-pad. So that's pretty cool. And you have your uh, AV out to a TV, right? Mm -hmm. You have a micro SD slot to, to so you can probably download more uh, ZX Spectrum games and play them. It, it, it looks, exactly, it looks classy. Their ducks are in a row. It's reasonably priced. And there's a thousand games that are licensed on it. And it has a purpose. To me, that's the biggest thing. Yes. It has a purpose because it's not like you can easily go out and get a ZX Spectrum and, and play it easily and get all the games on the original hardware. That hardware is defunct versus something like this. Right. That's a, another big difference, too. 
So yeah, I don't have much more to say to that other than as a perfect counterpoint to what what we've been talking about the past two weeks. Now. And it's probably done by people. Uh, oh, the four partners. Oh, Sir Clive Sinclair. Yeah. Oh, I fucking trust him to do it. Yep. The guy whose name on oh, it. Yeah. I, I trust him to do it. I don't know why we forgot to mention that <laughs> initially. Yeah, he's actually in on the project. You mean Mr. Sinclair? The guy who did the world's first pocket calculator? <laughs> okay. Sure. And he, he did the best-selling home computer, uh, UK's best-selling home computer of all time. Yeah, I trust him to come out with a product with his reputation, his name on the line, and it's his legacy. Yeah. I, I, I think he can do that. Sure. So this isn't just people dreaming of, oh, I bought a shell, let's come out with a game console. They don't give a shit about the game uh, console shell. They just care about the software and having a good product. Right. They're, they're developing the console in the correct direction. Software. Software on up. Yes. Go out towards the bullshit encasing. In and, this and, case, and, it's just and, a cool handheld. And, and hold on. I just want to point out that... Um, okay, so they're at... They needed... They only wanted... 100,000 pounds. And I don't know what my, what the conversion is, but I will say that's a lot less... 125,000? Yeah. U.S. Um, yet they were still able to machine tool their own little... What? Really? Their own little casing. So they didn't have to buy It wasn't... I guess, mold that, that, I, I guess that wasn't 90% of the cost. They weren't saving tens of thousands of dollars like they claim by having by using the Jaguar shells? And, and believe me, I've looked into machine tooling for certain things, and it is expensive, but uh, you know what? You can do it. You can do it. Hmm. By the way, there's over 14,000 games that were created for original Spectrum machines, which to me is mind-boggling. That's probably a lot more than even DOS games were. Or Apple, too. That's insane. Yeah, that's... 14,000? Well, then again, that was their main sort of computing. They didn't, NES wasn't that big. Sure. You know, so that's... But that's insane. Now, I, I feel like... I feel like... I, I think I feel like I have to buy this. I don't go into many Kickstarters, uh, but just the quality of this. And the fact that the guy who's... who's Sir Clive Sinclair is making this. I promise we're not shilling two products on one podcast, but I kind of want this too. We should, let's move on. Okay. I don't know how we, we, we missed this announcement last year, last summer, that this was happening. You know, there aren't, there aren't that many video game movies that are made. You know, that, that whole theory about, oh, there's going to be a Legend of Zelda anime movie, or it's going to be a Netflix and everything, or, you know, they don't happen. Video game movies don't happen that often. There's just too big a risk, or when they come out, they're fucking garbage, like Street Fighter, The Legend of Chun-Li, you know, or the Dead or Alive, uh, was there a Dead or Alive movie that came out? So, but this is a, this is an extremely strange choice for a movie game, so much so that it probably works just because they probably have to keep to the bare minimum of what the video game is, and we're talking about a Rampage movie. (laughs) So, the Rampage, and it's going to star uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And it's in production. And it's going to be made. He sounds fairly excited about it, too. Um, This, well, I'm not excited about this. I'm excited. Okay. (laughs) This, to me, we talked about this months ago with uh, Activision's movie studio and Call of Duty movies and that sort of thing. This, to me, is one of those things where the basic premise is broad enough that you can take the general idea and just go off and do whatever the hell you want with it. It's just going to be a monsters attack a city yes. story. Which which they've had the new Godzilla movie that came out a couple years ago. They're doing a sequel. They're doing Pacific Rim two. Mm-hmm. Um, they're doing a semi sequel to Cloverfield, which uh, that one's not a monster movie. The first one. So monster movies are are in right now. Big yeah. monster movies. So in that framework, this could work. And yes, you're going to have to have the three 
main monsters, probably, to, to connect it. One's with. an alligator instead of a lizard, probably to avoid Godzilla thing. You think but... they announced that? They think that'd be too close? Yeah, they announced it's going to be a silverback gorilla, a, 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 an alligator, and a wolf. Okay, that's close enough. Sure. Lizzie, the, Lizzie the gator. Okay. Fair. So I think that alone, though, is going to be cool because it can be probably a little comedic. The Rock's probably the only big action star we have besides Vin Diesel and Jason Statham. But he's the one that sort of, I guess, can do it with still with like a little wink. Vin Diesel's always gruff and uh, but The Rock, you know, he's true to his wrestling roots. He can be a little bit, a little bit campy and have it work. It can mm-hmm. work with him. Um, but no, this is in production. It's just funny because the Spy Hunter movie with him never happened ten, 10 years ago or so. They were supposed to make. They even made the freaking video game. Uh, yeah, but, but thinking the movie was going to come out and never came out. Uh, but uh, this could be fun. This could be a fun, stupid romp of a movie. Uh, who knows? I mean, it's going to be. It's going to have the writer, uh, the San Andreas uh, writer, who, who the Rock starred in last year. That was the the, the big earthquake movie yeah. uh, that that he was a helicopter pilot in. And yeah, you're going to have a storyline with the three monsters destroying everything. Probably not being good guys, but you know, it could be entertaining. Probably coming out, you know, 2017. Probably for the for the summer. Nothing else to add. You're not looking forward to this at all. I mean, I just think it's funny that it's a freaking. A midway game from the, the mid '80s sure. that's, that's being made into a movie. That to me is like one away from making a, a video game based upon APB. If it's campy enough, I'd be interested in seeing it. So I guess I'll just have to wait. For I mean, it, seriously, out of all the video games, yeah. like Rampage is not that popular. Versus, it's, it doesn't have a built-in audience. I mean, like, it was once upon a time. That's it. I mean, there's no built-in audience to oh, yeah. get that funded. That they said, "Oh, here's a Rampage movie." It's like, I would never have guessed they'd ever make Like that. I said, they probably just looked at the license and said, we can acquire this for cheap, and it's going to give us a very basic structure to make a movie. But it's only going to get, like, 3,000 people in the theater based upon the name alone. That's what's so funny to <laughs> sure. me. You know what I mean? It's not like Pixels, where you have Qbert and Donkey Kong, you're drawing fun, all these, all these major characters. You have one video game from the mid-'80s that you're drawing on that no one's, uh, you know, played. When's the last sequel that came out? You know, like, 12 years ago, 15 years ago? For Rampage. They did them for PS2 and Wii, and I think that was it. Um, there is a VGA slabbed trog prototype on eBay for $30,000. And this has been on there for a while, by the way. And this is disgusting. Um, the prototype has never been dumped. Now, who knows how close it was to completion or if there's any changes... But as someone who believes strongly in video game preservation, and no, I don't mean by putting it in a fucking UV-resistant <laughs> case and slapping a grate on it, um, it's absolutely atrocious that that's supposed to be a selling point, that it's been well, undumped. Is this technically a scumbag seller of the week, Ian? It could be. It could be a scumbag seller of the week. It could be a scumbag seller of the week. 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 Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, I mean, I don't know what else to say except for the fact that this sort of nonsense drives me fucking insane. Well, um, dump it. Dump it first. I mean, it's fucking Trog. It's it's an arcade game that got a decent port to the NES. Uh, it's fun enough. Um, it plays like Pac-Man, and you you can't just dump it. You're going to hold it ransom for 30000 If this is ever going to be dumped, the person is going to have to crack well, that seal, and, the, and, and then the thirty k that they paid for it is absolutely useless. Well, they've already turned off the people that would want to dump it because it's in a fucking acrylic case. Right, exactly. Like, you know, get my hammer and chisel and, and pry it open now? Right. Because, uh, well, I don't know how, how, how sealed these things what's are. What's insane about the fact of... If you want to protect the game, that's fine. If you want to get a case, you can open up, that's fine. But what's so insane about this 
is that you have the cartridge separate from the ROM board. Like, to show up, wow, there's the board. It's a... I would assume that if it's a prototype, I I know that there's going to be a fucking board in it. So that's just really strange. Like, how does that even appeal to me visually as a collector, if you're going to collect these, to take the fucking board out of it? That makes no... Just makes no sense on the surface. No. But yes, to have... To say in in the in the listing, the ROM has never been dumped, and then the game is in a UV-resistant acrylic display case. So the uv resist is really important because if there's no stickers on the EEPROMs, that could actually damage uh, the EEPROMs potentially in the data inside and have bit rot. That's fine, but then why not just dump it then? Just dump it before you fucking have it sealed forever. Because and have it sitting yourself. No one's going to buy this for twenty five thousand. No one's going to buy this for five thousand. No one's going to buy this for one thousand. It's trog. Because some people are like to feel smug in owning something that no one else can have. Meaning the data on this prototype, which is so funny because uh, and uh, and by the way, I think there's still the, the Nintendo Age thread from when I talked about how it's kind of shitty what people do with these prototypes and hold them for ransom back in the fall. It's still like people responding to that third Nintendo age and, and taking shots at me. Anyway, that said, um, people that respond saying that they own this, let me remind you, you, you own the physical cartridge only. Yes. You do not own the intellectual property held therein. Let me repeat that a third time. You do not own the intellectual property on that cartridge. Correct. So again, it's, you're just being uh, an elitist, smug piece of shit to do something like that, to hold it hostage. Yeah. To, to claim it as an investment. First of all, it, it's only an investment if someone else is going to buy it for more money than what you have it at. And again, no one's going to buy the trog for even four figures, let alone the five figures that they're asking for. Most third-party NES prototypes, even in this day and age, go for $300 or less. The vast majority of the regular third-party NES ROMs. A bunch just went for open auction. I was tracking them, and they went in the two to $300 range, some for a little more than 300 but that's it. I almost got a pinbot one for about 200 at Portland. See, exactly. There's buy it now, I think, on EV right now for like 250 300 for third-party games. So you know, for all intents and purposes, this trial to me is worth maximum, maximum probably $400, not twenty-five grand. So just... This person, I think, um, I saw this from Frank Cifaldi tweeting it. I think him and Chris Cole are going back and forth. That Frank Cifaldi said it was pretty funny. Uh, what's going to happen is so this guy's going to die, and then whoever gets the, the game next afterwards will probably have to end up dumping the information so it's preserved yeah. on it. And that's the way it's going to work because no one's going to buy it. Yeah, so. once the person who has money in it is, is gone, the next person who picks it up is going to be like, oh, this didn't cost me anything. Crack. Sure. Let's get this dumped. Anything else to add? No. Someone alerted this to me, and I, th- I thought this was a joke at first, but... Sky Kid is now selling on eBay for like $30, $40, and it's a common game. Very common. So why all of a sudden are people clamoring after the game? Well, a few weeks ago, James and Mike did a James and Mike Monday, which is their Let's Play series. Mike Matei and James Rolf of Cinemasker fame. They played Sky Kid on their James and Mike Monday, which is a Let's Play series. So I guess, I'm, I haven't been tracking this for a lot of the games they featured, but for this one in particular, when I looked at it, I was like, wow. There must have been an effect there. Now, whether that effect was people going out and seeing the video right away, and then buying the game, and then hiking up the price, or literally just people interested in it because they saw James and Mike having a good time playing it, either way, 
the game now has been selling for that much lately. At least on eBay. Because that's the easiest way to get it. So right now, there's listed a $50 buy it now, $36 buy it now, a starting bid of $25 under open auction, a $30 buy it now, a $44 buy it now, a $40 buy it now, $65 and $50. And there's not many for sale. And what's even funnier is that now a lot of the Japanese Famicom ones are for sale too. Um, which is just interesting as a side note. I don't think I've ever seen a Sky Kid uh, Famicom cartridge before ever for sale. So it's just interesting. And they've been selling even open auction $29. That was February 21st, not that long ago. So is this something to be fearful of for games going forward that they could sort of nudge the market up for all, for very common NES games well, like this? Well, I mean, Pat, a lot of people for a long time have, have accused uh, YouTubers of uh, inflating the prices of games. And I've always kind of felt like there could be some merit to that, and you, you kind of denied it. I think that at this point, we I think we can say that... Did I ever deny or think that it would have to be a very particular type I'm, of game? I'm pretty sure you didn't. You, 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 were, you were certainly on the closer end of denial. Um, and I... It doesn't matter. We have proof in front of us now. Now, the question is, what kind... What level of YouTuber does that require? What type of content provider does that require? Well, James and Mike are pretty fucking big. So... That could easily help hike the price. I don't necessarily know that you and I talking about some random game is going to make it shoot up. But this hasn't happened. They've done lots of games on like Mondays. We've done it for Super Off Road before. We've I'm, done it for bomb, uh, for various games. This does, it's not like this has happened for every single game they've done. No, but I've heard it. I've through through customers. I've heard of it happening through uh, with other games. I wouldn't know which ones, but they'd be like, "Oh, you've got this game for ten bucks," and I'm like, "Yep." And they're like, "Oh, it's going for thirty now." I'm like, "Why the hell?" Well, because it was on James and Mike. Monday. Super Off Road still a five dollar, ten dollar game. So. Sure, and I don't expect Sky Kid to hold this price for very long. So you think it could be? A, I think people are just going out and buying them real quick, and then they know they they can get more money for it. They must have had a great time playing it. I didn't see the video. I mean, the video has almost four hundred thousand views. That gives you an idea of how many people watch the video. They must have had a great time playing it. It's a damn good game. It's a I think it's a three and a half, a four star game, according to Ultimate Nintendo Guide to the NES Library. Still available for pre order. So, so I guess um, should we should we should I get the inside trading info and find out what what videos coming out? We can corner the market on all the games because we could if we wanted to. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> but you imagine I started doing that? I'm like, oh, all of a sudden I'm buying up all the uh, all, all the demon swords of that week and the next week. <laughs> There's a Jason Mike Monday. <laughs> 40 bucks. People start people will start trying to trying to text uh, text me so bad. Do you know what what uh what the James Mike Monday video is going to be next week? <laughs> so they can stockpile the game. <laughs> I don't know by the way. I'm not privy to a lot of information. I, I hear some stuff but I don't know. Deadpool came out. I saw it. Ian hasn't yet. That's okay. It was a fun romp of a time at the movies. It was uh very very laugh out loud funny, very violent. Perfect tone, uh, fourth wall breaking here and there, some some genuine surprises at certain points. Colossus was awesome, um, and then you had the, the nuclear. What is it? Teenage Warhead, Nexonic, uh, Negasonic, Neg- Teenage Warhead uh, was in it. Um, Ryan Reynolds obviously carried that movie. I'm not sure anyone else could have done it justice the way he did. I mean, he was the character. He really showed how much love and care. That, that he wanted to make that movie for the past freaking seven years after the abysmal portrayal of him, him at the end of uh, Wolverine Origins when they 
had basically a stuntman do it and, sh- and sewed his mouth shut. And Ron Reynolds was like, no, that's going to be awful. You guys are going to get so much backlash. And they didn't listen to him. And, of course, they got so much backlash at that. So it did huge numbers. They're like the biggest R-rated movie opening, like, ever. Wow. Um, and it's over, like, I think, like, five or six hundred million already. In like, in, like, two weeks for an R-rated movie. That's insane. That is. For less than two weeks. So, and the budget was only about 50 to 60 million. And it showed because there was only, like, two major set pieces in the movie. Like, they really had to hide the fact that this was not a $200 million superhero movie. This was a couple of, of uh, action scenes, a couple of big action scenes, and then you had, like, a montage of smaller action scenes, and half the movie was Ryan Reynolds with the mask off that they had flashback stuff. They really had to massage the plot to sort of make the fact that, that we, don't, we don't have a big budget here, folks. I mean, you're lucky you're getting this movie at all, basically. That's right. basically how it looks. But, but no, it, it, it got the job done, though. Uh, for what it was, and they're already planning a sequel to come out in 2018 uh, or 2017. 2000, I think it's 2000. I think it could be 2017, maybe a year and a half. I don't know, but they're already pushing forward with it, and so much so that they're really. It's funny because the all the insiders, uh, the Hollywood insiders, are like, "Well, we're so shocked the movie did this well," and even guys like James Gunn are like, "You guys are fucking idiots. It's a good movie. That's why. Yeah. They, that's why it's done so well." Never mind the fact that it's an R-rated. They don't understand the fact that, well, it's an R-rated superhero movie. They're making fun of the genre. That alone isn't why it's made the money. It's the fact that it's a good movie. It's faithful It's faithful to the character and source material. So there's there's a danger that when this shit happens that you're going to have copycats come out. Where, oh, you're going to have like all these uh, you know, acerbic uh, superhero movies that are going to be terrible. But I don't see that happening just because they're all tied up now, for the most part, between uh, Disney and Warner Bros. So I don't see that automatically happening. Right. Uh, unless you have some sort of like one-off characters from the freaking Image Comics come in, but they would bomb terribly if they tried something similarly. So, but the other good news from this is that uh, they announced that the third and final Wolverine movie is going to be R-rated, and that's going to come out next year. I think that's fairly necessary. I, I, I think that limiting a, a, a quality Wolverine storyline to the restraints of PG-13 is doing a great disservice to the character. Um, I know you don't like him, but he is a good character when he is handled well. I like I, that. Did you see the second movie? You see the Wolverine? I did not. You like the character? You didn't see it. It was a really good movie. Really good. Um, the fact that there was not a lot of blood and stuff, you can cut around it, but yes, it would have done well to have more blood and stuff, but no, it was really good. It was obviously a huge step up from Wolverine Origins, which was a fucking disaster of a film in 2009. Um, it was a lot better, and Hugh Jackman obviously plays the character well, but he's going to go out, and that'll be his, his last his last time doing it. He's, he's been playing the character for 16 years. I mean, yeah. But he still looks, he's more ripped than he was when he did it when he was 30, but now he's like 45, and you know he can probably do it another 5-8 years with the shape he gets into for these, but he's going to go out in style. Um, but I think what it shows that though is that you you shouldn't be afraid to do an R-rated superhero movie. No, U- usually they're always afraid to do R-rated movies because yes, R-rated movies by and large do less money because less people can see it. You can't have kids come and see it unless you're with an adult. They can get, but overall, some people are turned off by it, even though there's a huge amount of fucking violence in so many PG-13 movies. And all those superhero movies that are PG-13, so many people die in them horrifically. In Age of Ultron, a guy gets his arm ripped out by Ultron. That's violent. Yeah. The only difference is that there wasn't blood gushing out, but his arm was still ripped out of its socket. You know, like it's still horrific violence. But that's what people always say, that they, oh, they make less money. But I think 
that could change a little bit for something like this. Yeah, you can't do it with every single superhero movie. I mean, obviously the main Marvel Universe movies would do well to stay at PG-13 for maximum earnings. And really, it's kind of Marvel's current image in the, their mainstream comics. But something like Wolverine or Deadpool like or, or Punisher, these are all characters that could do an R-rated movie just fine. So this has uh, been coming up on social media, on YouTube the past week or so, um, about YouTube videos and the unnecessary copyrights, strikes, and claims that have been coming down on pretty pretty big YouTubers, not just small guys. So one of the bigger ones that came about was Doug Walker, who's a nostalgia critic, had a, a strike against one of his videos. Um and so you can make the claim that, okay, well, maybe Doug Walker's Nostalgia Critic videos isn't really towing the fair use line entirely because a lot of times it is riffing and commentary, not just reviews. There is a lot of footage use, and that can be all well and good. But the fact of the matter is, I think it was something like three weeks where he had this strike, and he couldn't even really attest it correctly or try to talk to someone at Google slash YouTube about it. Like, there was just no way to get in touch with a human. That's insane. And, and this is not a small channel. This is like 300,000, 400,000 people. And if you can't, if that person can't get in touch with someone to contest it or work it out, or, then a smaller YouTuber couldn't either. And this has been happening more and more with people. And this goes back to the Fine Brothers themselves making false claims. Uh, but anyone can really make these claims, not just uh, claims for, for the money, the content ID, which means the video stays up, but they, the money goes towards other entity a lot of times falsely. Uh, which happened to me somewhat recently using a music track that someone claimed it on a remix, which was totally bullshit. Yeah. I, and I contested it, and they didn't even bother to try to come back because they realized they were in the wrong. But DMCA strikes, that could be false, which totally screw up your channel in terms of monetization and not being able to have videos like more than like whatever, 10 or 15 minutes, and those last six months uh, by themselves. And, and three, and you're totally gone. Your YouTube channel's wiped. But there have been channels that have been getting wiped out without notice. And they're, so now this is getting more and more sort of steam with YouTubers saying, what the hell is going on? Um, so this is, but this is why, first of all, this is why this exists like this, exists like this to begin with. And it's a legality thing. Um, YouTube and Google has to have a system like this in place, semi-automated, to keep the uh, movie companies and music companies off their back and off their ass legally. Um, if they did not have a system like this in place, you can have the movie companies and uh, music companies suing them to say, well, you're just allowing a, a platform to exist where people can infringe on the copyrights of all our, our, our TV shows, all our movies, and all our music, and go after Google constantly for it. That's why Napster died. Napster was like, well, we just have a file-sharing program. We're not sharing the files ourselves. No, 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 no. That didn't stand up because they weren't doing anything at all. Nothing... Um, to try to even curb it even slightly to show that in good faith they were trying to not have it be used illegally. YouTube has to, in good faith, have a system in place to show that we are not having a system solely in place for illegal use. That's why this system I exists. That said, it's still bullshit, though, that there's absolutely no team 
that you can easily get involved with if something like this happens to you and a video gets taken down that you could even contest it or have an arbiter come in and try to work it out. Yeah, it's mind blowing to me, and I didn't even I didn't even know this was the case, but now I do. I it, it's it's insane that there's no support team on call. Yeah, I'm not saying Google you have to hire a thousand people, but how about hiring twenty or thirty people to look at these cases as they as they come so in? So you can turn them over in a in a few days as opposed to a few weeks. Sure. If something's totally bullshit, you, if you have a person on staff that can say, oh, yeah, this is totally bullshit. I look at it and get back to you. We'll have it resolved by tomorrow or a couple of days. At least you have some sort of recourse you know exists. Even if there's a backlog, you know there's some recourse. And it's not like Google can't afford it. You know, a multi-billion dollar company. Put, put a team of 30 people. You know what I mean? Have, have case managers. Have managers of them overseeing it, or have some sort of hotline number or something there in place uh, that you can get in touch with. And someone like Doug Walker, he's on a network. You know, I think he's I think he's on Polaris, I believe. Like you're telling me, even there, they had no one that on a huge MCN to get in touch with Google directly to help solve a problem like that. I'm not saying he was even even right or wrong in this instance, but at least have someone to talk to to say to work it out. And. The problem, though, is that, I mean, Google's making so much money off of so many channels, it's not like they have an impetus to, to put something like that in place, but because you're, you're pissing off big channels that are getting struck down, they come back the next day, and it's insanity. It's absolutely insane. It happened to, it happened to, uh, to uh, I think it happened to Cinemasker a couple of years ago, where a bunch of false claims all filed in a row, uh, or community guideline claims got, this, got it taken down for about a day, got wiped off of YouTube before it got put back. Now, you, now usually they get put back fairly quickly, but, but the fact that they can be taken down that quickly is insane. So I, I don't see this being solved easily unless, um, unless Google actually takes it seriously. Now, Grade A under A, our pal Grade A, who's not Scottish, by the way, he did a video actually addressing this recently as good timing and said to, to tweet at nicely, um, I think it's the... Uh, this, the, the the president of uh, YouTube uh, to sort of get attention to, to sort of get some sort of something going that so they actually recognize this is happening. Because who knows? Maybe the hires of a Google don't even know this is happening. Maybe it's so far below their attention that it never gets in the bur- bureaucracy that's involved. Sure, I mean, but it has to be at the top floor of the castle. Who knows what reaches? Yeah. yeah. So uh, I mean, uh, so I mean, unless people started leaving YouTube en masse because of this problem, it's not like it would affect the bottom line of what YouTube is bringing in. So, uh, so we'll see how this develops in the future. I mean, I've been a victim of this uh, some small degree, so it is an issue. But other YouTubers, it's been a lot more serious. And it can be abused. The fact that the system can be abused, and there's no recourse, and there's no penalty for these false claims too, which is something grade A brought up, is that there's no penalty. Like, there should be, you have to really think about, before I want to go through with this, uh, either claim or copyright strike, am I in the right? Or is this blatant uh, disregard for the rules? Am I just filing, filing, filing something to be an asshole or to, or to be a nuisance? If that's the case, it should come back onto that person. There should be a, some sort of penalty in place. Um, so until that happens, it can be abused, abused unfortunately. And uh, yeah, it's just something that YouTube has to figure out. So in some cheerful news, personally, I find it cheerful... Um, Sam Pepper has taken down all of his content and tweets amidst uh, the sexual harassment claims against him. Um, I'm not going to go into the case a whole lot, but, um, 
I want to say something about these these YouTube stars, especially these fucking douchey looking uh, prank video people and whatnot. And Sam Pepper is one of the, these prank guys. He's the guy yeah. we covered about the 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 f- faking the uh, friend's death hostage video, whatever that was back like three four months ago. Right, which is something I was gonna. I think uh, we, when we covered in an H3H3 video, too, covering just prank videos in general, he was, like, one of the main focuses. Um, you're not invincible. Um, and I don't care how many fucking fans you have, uh, you can cross that line with them. Um, I think people can only see so many staged videos of you groping a girl's ass and getting a kiss for money. Uh, before they get sick of it. And I'm sure you didn't win any fans by faking uh, the murder of your friend without their knowledge. Um, your last statement was, I give up, and my answer to that is fucking good. I'm glad you give up. Um, don't victimize yourself, you son of a bitch, because you're not a victim. You victimize plenty of other people. So, I don't know, Sam. Go get a job flipping fucking burgers and deal with it. Your YouTube career's over. Um, let's Let's hope. I'm going to be a little more cynical in thinking this could be a publicity stunt. I saw some person write that this could be a way for him to re- try to come back at some point and rebrand his channel because it's not like his YouTube. Sure. It's not like his YouTube channel's gone. He just privatized everything. I mean, tomorrow he could flip a switch and it comes back on. Basically, fair enough. You know what I mean? So, um, but I think there's something to be said though for these. We always want to talk about. This isn't the time or place to talk about. The, the, the egos of YouTube, and this is a prime example of someone who's not that old. I think this guy's like 26. He got all his fame very quickly, doesn't know how to handle it, and basically took advantage of it. In this case, took advantage of it with some of his fans. And this is backlash coming, and he could be feeling the heat. Allegedly doing some inappropriate things. Um, so, I think there's I think there's some sort of, uh, with, with these YouTube folks that do these sort of salacious videos like this, I think there's a shelf life. Like milk. At some point, it gets old. Yeah, well, that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, there's only so many times you can watch this yeah. shit before it's the same thing over not, and over. Not just that, though. I think at some point they have to realize that uh, for guys like like Sam Pepper or SoFlo Antonio, his buddy in crime, once you market yourself a certain way and you show yourself to have no integrity, whether it's stealing people's videos, doing false claims, trying to trademark a fucking word, and trying to tra- uh, try to monopolize the whole genre of video. You show yourself to be in the public a certain type of person, and you have to think that long term that damages you personally and damages your brand of the video you're doing, and you can't always come back from that. At the very least, you're going to have a ceiling you're going to hit, and you won't be able to cross over as easily into other areas to be a quote-unquote mainstream star or do other work because you've pegged yourself a certain way. So far, Antonio ain't going to be showing up on in, in movies or on TV shows. No. Sam Pepper... Well, I think he started out on Big Brother UK or something. It's doubtful he's going to get back to a, that point he probably was at before. He found this this sort of weird corner of YouTube doing these uh, prank videos, some some staged, some real, and that's who he is, and that's what he's going to be. So you got to be really careful when you act certain ways like this, and especially well in this case, this could be some criminal activity involved. But you really have to watch what you're doing long term. Yeah, you're getting those million of, millions of views right now and you're making some money now, but then again, you might be living in LA or New York City and all that money goes away and then long term, you're still left with nothing. Vaporizes. It, yeah, it's some, it's just like being a sports star and you might get all that fame and money quickly, but you can blow it all and then you know, you're know you gone out of, the, out of the league in a few years and you're left with nothing. 
the same thing can be said for some of these YouTubers. It's not always, it's not guaranteed long term. You know, you have to really watch your behavior and watch what product, the product that your brand that you're putting out there and what it is. And Sam Pepper, maybe this is for real, maybe it's not, maybe it's a, a scheme to rebrand himself. But at the very least, he's reaching a crossroads at this point where people are sort of fed up with what he's presented. All right. Q&A time on the CU podcast. Uh, Captain E007. Why hasn't anyone made a Bloodsport game yet? And if there was one, how cool would it be? 8-bit 16? I've uh, I've actually always asked this question. (laughs) Um, Which is funny because one kind of exists. Sort of. Um, the thing with, of all the movie properties to be turned into fucking games, Cool World, <laughs> Blues Brothers, I mean, Wayne's World. Oof, that's a bad one. Uh, yet we couldn't get a Bloodsport game? Hudson Hawk. Well, and Bloodsport was released at a time where that could have been viable. Bloodsport was 88. Well, you could have had what? Like a Kung Fu type side scroller beat him up? You know, like, was you had something like that? You can argue that it eventually came out as kind of like Mortal Kombat. That's Enter the Dragon. I've always looked at Mortal Kombat as Enter the Dragon. But you had, it was supposed to star Jean-Claude Van Damme as, John, okay. as basically the Johnny Cage role. Sure, fair enough. But if you want to get technical, there is the Kubate mode in Best of the Best on Super Nintendo. Semi-uncommon? It is an uncommon game. That's one of those games that, way back at Funkoland, I'd go to Funkoland every month looking for that freaking game. This is right before <laughs> eBay got big, and I didn't have a credit card yet, so I really loved that game. I rented it <clears throat> once as a kid and could never find it again. So once I started to get back into systems in the late 90s, I wanted best of the best on Super Nintendo. And boy, that day when I finally found that game at a fun- my local Funkoland, of oh, the fun I had at that point. Um, so yeah, in best of the best, you... <laughs> It's it's a kickboxing game, and it's unique in that you can create your own move set, and it's rotoscoped, and you have like fifty different kicks and punches and combos and jump kicks, and there's a certain point in the game where you can invite it to the kumite, um, which is basically the same gameplay as the uh, as the regular kickboxing, except there's no rounds, um, and it's just you fight until you knock the other person out, and it, and it's like the, it's basically the background kickboxer. It's like underground. You have this. So it's a combination of Kickboxer, the movie, and Best of the Best, the movie, and Bloodsport, the movie, like all in one. But I want a Bloodsport freaking action figures. That's what I want. Yeah. I want the, I want those I want those reaction figures, you know, that do like Big Trouble Little China. I want that for two two franchises. Bloodsport and Predator. I always wanted Predator action figures, not just the fucking Predator. I want Dutch. Mm-hmm. I want the Jesse Ventura character. I want all. I want Mac. I want the Carl Weathers character. I want all seven or eight of them. Uh, I think that'd be awesome. Yeah. This question is from Rob Million. Is buying games from Goodwill on eBay reliable? Just have stock photos and have no condition description. I'm guessing he's saying, is buying games from Goodwill reliable or the or the Goodwill auction site? I guess is what he means. Um, I think when you're looking at Goodwill, you have to be a little careful just because they usually don't test the games out. But they usually, from what I have seen, and I've bought a decent amount of stuff over the years in Goodwill auctions, they do take pictures of the, of the actual items. Now, shipping might vary. For the past ones I've bought, and I, I don't buy that much much on Shop Goodwill anymore, um, they have shipped stuff very well. 
when I first started buying stuff about six years ago, when not a lot of people knew about it still, the shipping could be a little weird. One time I was actually shipped an Odyssey 2 in the box where there was no outer box. They literally used like fucking that awful brown packing tape. Oh, God. On it, I couldn't believe it. And then, and then again, on eBay, someone did that once to me too. I bought the I bought the uh, Odyssey uh, shooting rifle. They didn't they didn't uh, box it out of box. I sh- sent that ship shit right back. I remember when that. Came I was in. so I fucking pissed. pissed you were. And I still don't own it. Um, so I think you got to be careful in terms of game consoles because sometimes they'll say it's been turned on but we don't have the games to test it sometimes they test it i mean when you think about it the goodwill auctions are really all the individual goodwill stores throughout the u.s so some might have better employees than others might be more thorough than others when testing the game systems but there's a lot of lot of games out there for it uh that you can find on the on the goodwill auction site but you ain't gonna get good deals a lot of times they go for just as much as eBay, if not more, which is really surprising when you see the prices. It's really goodwill's you, a business, not a charity. No, no, but it's surprising how they're, they're, they get bid up that much, um, much. Oh, so it's all auction. They're all auction, uh. but they get bid up to the point where. And by the way, before you get on Ian for saying, "Oh, it is a charity," te- yes, technically it's a nonprofit, but come on. Anyway, they're not giving back to the community at all. Anyway, so um, the prices on game lots when. Uh, I used to look on some of them, and you calculate them out, it's like maybe 5% lower than eBay, or a lot of times they go for the same ass. So I don't know if it's just collectors going on there, or resellers, or a combination, but if it's resellers, their profit margins must be really bad, because I don't see how they're making money after having that stuff shipped out to them uh, from Goodwill uh, auction sites. So, yeah, so take a look. I mean, you can find some good stuff. In terms of deals, though, that's going to be rough. I haven't got a good deal on Shop Goodwill in quite a while. And this question is from AudioZilla. If retro games suddenly started heavily decreasing in value, would you panic, sell, would you panic, sell, or hold on to your collections? Well, since I'm not collecting to worry about the value, I, I wouldn't matter to me. I would just hold on to it. Yeah, my answer is basically just as simple. Uh, if I found out that Sapphire had suddenly become a $200 game instead of a $500 game, I'd take that as a good sign to just start buying up all the expensive PC Engine shit that I've always wanted. I'm not selling it off. This, yeah, it, is, this is not something I'm doing for a profit. It's really strange, because whenever I see or hear something like that, I, I, I don't categorize collectors as caring, number one, about the value of something. No, there are some out there that do, but I, it's weird that that's kind of... I don't know, it seems like that's more that's becoming more of an assumption. To me, that's speculation, that you're a speculator at right. that point. Because if you don't care about what's on the cartridge or, or what you're actually collecting as much as what the price is worth, then why don't you just buy and sell stocks? Or, or mutual funds. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, especially when these games go for as much as a mutual fund, you know? If you're spending $1,000 on a Dinosaur Peak, Flintstones with the manual or whatever, go out and buy $1,000 in stocks then and play with that. You know, like, I don't understand why you would put it towards something like you don't actually care about the fun or art put into something right. that you play. So put it into paper and make your money the same way. Ex- exactly. Um, or maybe it's because you want to be attached to something and be part of a scene or a hobby that's cool. But, but yeah, if, if they started decreasing in value, I think it'd be great for those that actually want to buy the games to play because then they would it would get rid of the speculators and, mm-hmm. the, and all the and all the vipers and leeches that have come into the scene the past five or six years, especially. 
um, the people that like slabbing things, they would go away and go towards toys or comics or anything else. That's how you know what the person is about. If they've migrated from something or can easily migrate to something else, they didn't really love it to begin with, did they? They just sort of glommed onto it because they saw, they saw dollar signs. Right. So to me, that's the best I could answer that. I wouldn't panic because the majority of my games I got way back when and I didn't spend top dollar anyway. Well, at the time they were top dollar for, you know, when I bought the little, when I bought little Samson, I spent $90 on it, not five or 600. So I wouldn't care because I'm not looking to, I don't need the money. If I needed, if I needed the money, I wouldn't have spent the tons of money to begin with to get the shit. Exactly. It's such a weird thing when you think about it. I'm gonna spend. A, I'm worried about the the value of of a fucking video game, so I'm gonna spend a thousand dollars on it first, and then don't spend the money. Then, if you're worried about the value, yeah, because it's not like you're uh, buying gold or silver. You know, something that could have some stability overall or go up. You're buying a fucking video game or a toy. I refuse to believe that video games are going to forever trend upwards. I don't want to talk about bubbles bursting, but at some point, these aren't going to be worth what they are now. No. It always comes back to those really rare stuff keeps the value. The common ones, oh no. Contra is going to be a $300 game. No. You're not going to see that. No, there will be a time at some point when everyone who gets out, everyone who's only in this partially gets out of it, and, uh, you know, Contra will go back to being 10 bucks. Yay. All right. This is from at Crozy. Has harassment or people's BS ever made you consider reducing your presence online or stop creating content? Um, I mean, I got used to, you know, harassment and comments and shit like that. It's just something that I think people who uh, do things online have to deal with. It was a little weird for me at first because I honestly didn't expect this little podcast that Pat and I were doing to get to the level that it did. Um, kind of separate from that, I, every once in a while I feel like reducing my, my online presence. And I did take some steps to doing that by like getting rid of Facebook and, and some other social media. Um, I'm not, I'm not good at holding my tongue. And I sometimes talk on Twitter, like I'm talking to only my friends. Uh, so I do, there are points where I feel uh, very exposed. Um, kind of like I've, 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 uh, I've, 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 I've shown my cards too much. But that usually passes in a few days, and uh, you know I go back to you know some sort of moderate online presence. And I can't I can't speak about creating content because this is all I do. I don't do any of my own stuff. But if I were creating content, no, the harassment wouldn't stop me from creating it. I think you have to have a a, a thick skin to put yourself out there to begin with. Mm. You just have to. Uh, going back to the game trailers days when people would say, "Oh, you should be beat up." Uh, or, you know, you, you should get cancer and die. These are comments that came at me when I was on game trailers. And you have to realize that the people making those comments are weak and cowardly, by and large. People that actually have something going on in their lives, any sort of positivity, wouldn't have the time to, to do stuff like that. Or they wouldn't even think about it because they have fulfilling lives. They have something that matters to them. They have something to live for at that point. Not saying you can say, Oh, well there are professional trolls and it's an, it's an artwork. Okay. I'm sure there's one or two people out there. That's how they get their rocks off. And to them, they, they, they try their best to put an effort, but for people that, that leave just awful comments, it's 
to me, it's the same as if someone went outside their house, yelled, uh, suck my balls in the, into the, into the air, you know, four people on the block hear it, look out their window. Well, that's kind of weird. And you never hear from that person again. Right. And that's it. It's just that you always have the people that want attention or say, me, 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 me. I'm important. Me, 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 me. I'm going to leave the same comment on your YouTube page, your Facebook page, on your Twitter account. I want attention. I want attention. So you can either give them the attention or fall for it, or you can totally ignore them or block them or tell them to fuck off. And then you never hear from them again. Who cares? Or if you hear from them, you know, they're a minor nuisance for every now and then. But for the most part, then you can get on with the rest of your life. You know, and that's that's the choice you make. You you, you can't let it get to you. If you're going to put yourself out there, you can't do it. You know, as, if you think about like movie stars or TV, think about what we do versus what they do. And they get a thousand times the adulation, but a thousand times the hate. And they can't let it get to them or else they go insane. Right. You know, or someone like Kanye. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, where were we? All right. At DATMC Tunes, does the price of retro games get affected positively or negatively by its release on virtual console? Um, yes and no. It it really depends on what it is. And I'll use I'll use two examples uh that I think uh I'll use three. Um it really depends on the type of game it is and how people view it as a collectible. When Marvel vs. Capcom 2 uh, was still being played heavily in tournaments and the only ways you could get it were Dreamcast, PlayStation 2, and Xbox, that game became quite expensive. Um, I don't remember what it topped out at roughly on eBay, but I want I know that the game had reached like... 60, 70, 70 80 used? 80, I was going to say somewhere between 60 and 100 is probably where I'd say it was probably at for a long time. Oh, which, 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 which console was it harder to get on? I think it was Xbox it was harder to get on? The original yeah, Xbox? but the, the, I think universally the best version was claimed to be the Dreamcast version. And if I'm not mistaken, the Dreamcast code is actually what was used in the digital re-release because it was considered the best. So what happens then is this game climbs to very, very high numbers because people want to play it desperately. Uh, it's being played in tournaments. It's a fun game. Uh, so people want to get their hands on it. However, I don't think a lot of those people looked at it as a collectible. These were people who wanted to play it to play it, to practice, and to get good with their friends. So it's no longer available as a digital download. But when it, went, when it became a vig- uh, available as a digital download, the price on that game dropped to about 25 bucks. Mm-hmm. With the Dreamcast version still holding, probably the only one that held some sort of collectible aspect at maybe like forty. Um, now that the uh, digital download is no longer available due to licensing stuff, uh, I mean we have started to see a slow a slow creep upwards. But now people have kind of moved on to other games. So in that instance, yeah, it affects it hugely. Um, but then there are games that people view as hugely collectible or hugely desirable to own in their physical versions. And the um, the example I'm going to use here is obviously Earthbound. There is a digital re-release of Earthbound on the Wii U. It's 10 bucks. It's great. Go buy it if you want to play the game. It has not, in any meaningful way, affected the value of Earthbound carts or anything of the sort. Um, why? Because the people who are really into it don't want a digital copy. They want a physical copy, and they will go out and they'll find it. 
I, I could be a weird exception just because Earthbound fans are more, I want to say, cultish. Um, I don't know. There, there were expensive Turbo games that got re-releases that it didn't affect their value. Like, certain things that collectors want, and it is going to be, you're not, you're not entirely wrong, it is going to be cult hits. Um, but it's not going to affect those. I'm looking at some of the Earthbound prices now, because I think that did, that did cap it, though. Because that was going up to over $250. Well, I capping it is, is different than dropping the price. I think uh, the cap was happening naturally. Sure, but now it's like a $200 game, <laughs> it looks like. Um, yeah, that dude... Or, or a little bit lower on open auction. We've been selling it, I think, for 180 for three years. So it sure. hasn't changed. Sure. It has not changed since the virtual console re-release. 160 by it now, 214 by it now, 165. Um, the 165 open auction, 178. Suikoden 2 has not really dropped in price since the digital re-release of that on PSN. Uh, these are examples of games that collectors prize and they want to hold. And yes, they are largely RPGs. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it can go both ways. And then, it, then there are times where it affects it negligibly or not at all. Um, all of Nintendo's re-release, like virtual console releases, have barely affected the value of, of the games. So people just like physical media. They like the original. Well, for an example, a $5 digital download of fucking Super Mario Brothers, uh, someone's going to go out and buy that cart for $7, $10. And it is, it is rising a little bit. They are getting a little bit, little bit... I'm just saying I don't have 55 of them anymore. I have about 10 in stock at any oh, given time. Cool. But I'm just saying someone's not going to pay $5 for Mario when they can basically go out and get a physical copy of it for 5 bucks. Well, that's well, that's when it's the same price, though. This is when Suikoden 2, though, is like a you know, hundred and what $130 game versus... Well, I'm just saying, okay, so look at it like Super Mario Brothers is 10. People will pay a little bit more to get the physical copy. It's not going to necessarily affect it. Sure. So it didn't happen when uh, Danny Sullivan's In the Heat came out, though. You know, I think the price made people want the, the cartridge more just went skyrocketing. People discovered the greatness of Danny. All right. We've got some gifts unboxed. We have some do. gifts uh, to unbox, and, and one w- got lost in the mail that actually was shipped in December, but didn't arrive till like, sometime in January. Yeah. You know, so we feel bad it was a Christmas. It was from uh, Brian. Uh, so we'll open that one first. We have a few few more that we'll open real quick for you guys. And this was from Brian Rawson. Okay. Packed with... Packed with uh, good paper towels. Nice. Very super absorbent. And we have... Oh, wow. We got a, we have a card for Ian. Sweet. Merry, merry late Christmas. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Brian. It's an adorable card. It's a cat with a hat. I have a box for my stuff. This is Ian's stuff, I think. I feel so bad. This I, th- I so think long. I pre-opened this because I wanted to see what this was. Because uh, Brian, you reached out saying, "Did you get the stuff?" And I didn't at the time. But sorry, Ian, this is already open. But you have a, a trifecta of Ducktales merchandise. Really? <laughs> so what do you got there, Ian? Oh, this is so cool! I've got one. I've got the Tiger Ducktales game, which I will uh, be putting batteries in as soon as I get home. And reviewing for Ian's happy handhelds. Uh, come to a DuckTales party. <laughs> I got a bunch of DuckTales birthday parties. Oh, awesome. Like I always when you used to buy yes. those birthday kits. Yeah, the birthday kits. And a 63-piece uh, DuckTales uh, jigsaw puzzle, which I will probably also put together and then put that lacquer shit over the top that they use. That Are you su- really, would you really do that? suitable for hanging? Yeah, I would do that. Uh, I, and put it like, in the shadow box. Yeah. Uh, uh, I got a little box with a little reindeer on it because, yes, it's still Christmas in February. And inside, ooh, uh-oh. Oh! Toys? 
a, a little, is that Bub or Bob? Bob, a bubble bobble. Nice. A little blue guy, little pin, thanks. I lost my lanyard with all the pins on it. It really upset me back at Portland last year, you remember? Oh, yeah. Um, but I'm starting a new one, but yeah, I lost my Pearl Konami lanyard. Really upsetting with all the pins, including one from Justin. An original, wow, an original 3D Virtual Boy. Nice. Yeah, look at the changes. You see that? It's changing. Uh, look at that. What a failed system, but a cool pin. That's an awesome pin. Thank you. That's an original pin. The size is huge, too. 3D right technology there. puts you in the game. It sure did for that six months it was on the shelf. Mm-hmm. We have some Perler art. It's the uh, bob Uh Is that the Super Mario World version? Oh, it's really, it looks kind of like the Mario 3 one, but anyways, it's super cute. Super cute. Original, still with the gum, it feels like. Uh, three rub-off cards, Donkey Kong's... Donkey Kong Kong's cards, those are really cool. And eat, then... Eat the gum. Oh, we got another pin. We have... Oh, we have Pit, all geared up in his... In That's his, awesome. In his gear, ready to fight Medusa in the last stage. That's in the shoot, cool. shooter level. And I don't have this awesome... That's the one that you were looking for. Though. I'm looking for this is the the Super Mario Three promo. It's the, uh, the 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 Goomba one. So I don't have the the Koopa one that hops. Right. And I don't have the. Um, there's one other one I don't have, but there's like six and all. How does this work? The little suction thing. You I just forget. well, the suction cup is probably dry. If you moistened it, it, it oh, it pops. It, it, it pops and it usually. If it's if it's fresh enough, yeah, it pops It'll up, pop up. And, and it will cause it to flip. Oh, moistly. Well, thank you very much, Brian. This was very thoughtful of you. And sorry that it got lost in the mail. Yeah, but we found it. We found it. And thank uh, you. All right, Ian, what do you got there? I think it's a record. All right, well, Ian figures that out. It's <laughs> Dion and the Magic Chords, which I absolutely know. I mean, it's good, but I just couldn't figure out who it was from. So I'm going to try to find that and, and thank this person. So this was to Pat and Ian, the, the letter. For some reason, Dear Pat and Ian, for some reason your podcast started popping up in my What to Watch thingy on YouTube. At first I would just click it away. After all, who would want to watch an HD guy and a fuzzy guy yak about bullshit? Eventually, I started listening, and now I'm hooked. I love the fact that you guys have different opinions, and the topics can stray from just gaming to feminism, gay rights, and pointing out the lack of common sense in whatever YouTube celebrity scandal might be happening now. Gay rights? Sometimes there's a tad of that American self-righteousness, as well as a little bit too much ripping on GameStop. Some wrestling news that I don't care much about. Okay, let's stop. Wait a second, this is taking a turn. But on the whole, there's never a dull Uh, moment during your rants. I also appreciate the fact that the podcast is only once every fortnight. I listen to other podcasts as well, but the frequent output of those can be a tad overwhelming at times. Less is more. I'm sure this package will arrive too late, but I thought that Ian might appreciate our little record as he has a thing for synthesizers. I swear I've heard them before. We were learning the ropes and we had shitty mics, so I hope you can see past the amateur sound quality. We have a second album on the way and that's sounding much more like it's supposed to sound. Drop us a line and let us know what you think of this. A little token of my appreciation for putting out a most enjoyable podcast. Do they have a SoundCloud, or am I imagining things? Thank you. What was her name? Griffin. Griffin? Sincerely, Griffin. Griffin from Harry Potter, like the the like the the, the club. Or? Griffin. Griffin okay. from Griffin. With our American self righteousness and <laughs> which I don't think we talk about that that much. I feel like it's pretty much just tongue in cheek, man. <laughs> don't need to worry about it too much. This is from Bryce and Lisa. Oh, they're two regulars, and I love them both dearly. Here's some stuff. Hey, Pat Neen. Here's some stuff I thought you would enjoy. 
The comics are for Pat, and the bag of goodies is for bag of goodies is for Ian. Love the podcast and can't wait for the book to come out. Take care, Bryce and Lisa. Here's your bag of goodies. They're super There's cool. A pen. You got a patch there, and I got some comics. P.S. Do not like the American self righteous no, no. All right. Uh, so I got these are some comics. Looks like from the uh, early '90s era of of Marvel. Nice. We have the Punisher number sixteen. The Kingpin wants the Punisher dead, <laughs> and it's the Punisher who is uh, coming on some big guy with the big machine gun. Nice. Right there. I can't wait for Daredevil season two because it has a Punisher yep. and John Berthold playing him, who's a really good actor. Nice. And Electra's playing uh, is in there, and Electra's played by someone who's really cute. I'm not sure who the actress is. Web of Spider-Man number ninety-five. Venom, Ghost Rider, Johnny Blaze, the most popular people at the time in early 90s Marvel. Uh, Venom and Ghost Rider. Before Venom and got really played out, and Ghost Rider, boy, did he get played out. But uh, Spirits of Venom. Oh, they did Spirits of Venom. I know they did Spirits of Venom. This is about where the time I stopped reading. Uh, just about around there. About, uh, Ghost Rider and Blaze, Spirits of, of Venom, Vengeance. Web of Spider-Man with a nice, ooh, a nice painted cover. Another one. This is a lot of... It must be a Ghost Rider fan. A lot of Ghost Rider stuff going on here. A lot of crossover stuff. And then another Ghost Rider and Blaze, Spirits of Vengeance, Spirits of Venom. So I guess Venom and, and Ghost Rider are teaming up for a while or are fighting each other. I don't know. That's an interesting combo, though, when you think about it. But you like Spider-Man. I do like Spider-Man a lot. Thank you very much. I got this amazing pin, and I love pins, and I can't remember the name of these... Fucking crows, and it's going to drive me Who's nuts because I should know. Heckle and Jekyll. Thank you, Jesus Christ, Jesus. Um, and I got a stone brewing patch, which is fantastic. Regardless, that's really nicely done. And the, <laughs> and I got some pogs. Pogs. <laughs> I, I got milk a, caps. I got a sweet Goku pog, and a cable pog, and a comic man pog that I don't know, but perhaps. Wow, it's ninety three again. But perhaps the best one, a Bruce Lee pog. Oh, that's awesome. That's amazing. Uh, why, why didn't I get any pogs? I like pogs. I'm going to frame that. I'm going to find a little thing that I can what's, put it in. What's that cat card from? That was from Brian. Oh, I need some of the cat card. Yeah, he gave me a cat card. It's very cute. Okay. Uh, from Christian from Louisiana. Well, we got multiple bags. They're packed like kilos of Coke. Yeah. <laughs> that's what it looks like. Street value is about... Or brickweed. Sorry for the bad handwriting and bad gift wrapping. Your handwriting is awesome. I have serial killer handwriting. This is actually really pretty handwriting. Let me see. What, 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 I want to read it. I just want to see the handwriting real quick. Isn't that pretty? That's like calligraphy That's almost. That's fantastic to me. handwriting. Yeah. Pat and Ian, I have been a fan of the show for a while now. I'm a freshman in college, and whenever I'm feeling stressed about things, I'll watch the podcast. I always look forward to new videos you guys put out. I got slash made several things for you guys during my Christmas break, so I hope you enjoy. Thank you guys for the hours of entertainment you brought me, and I hope to see more. P.S. Ian, I don't know if you have a VHS VHS player or not, but I thought this would be pretty cool since this is movie-inspired. This Since this movie inspired me to study film in college. I freaked out when you said you love this movie. So, yeah, Christian. <clears throat> okay. Penny. I have enough VHSs now to warrant a VHS player. There was someone at the swap meet this past uh, Sunday who had, they must have had someone's collection or an old rental store. They had probably 500 VHS tapes, like, played out. All right, this is for me. 
Oh, these are actually wrapped. Oh, this is a late Christmas gift. Good wrapping job. You know what? You shouldn't be so down on yourself with your handwriting and your gift wrapping. This is better than me. You're fine. I know I smell candy. Uh, trying to front me up. <laughs> what do we got? I got jelly bellies. I got Star Wars. What is this? I got more Jelly Bellies, Haribo, and then I got a Galaxy mix of Jelly Bellies. So did I. Sparkle. I think we got the same thing. Tropical mix? Yeah. Uh, jelly Belly, Tropical mix. Citrus mix. Galaxy mix, because Vader loves... Oh, but... Oh, the Har the best gummy bears on the planet. Yep. The Haribo uh, gold bears. Those are easily the best. And, uh, and Jelly Belly dark chocolate... Ooh, dark chocolate covered? Oh, that's fucking nuts. Did you get that? No. Tab what? They're chocolate-covered Tabasco ones. Thank you very much. That's what did you get instead? That's going to be good. I got um, a bigger box of Jelly Belly, a smaller box of Jelly, uh, Jelly Belly, a bag of Haribo, and Galaxy Jelly Belly. That's fine. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. I'll, I'll, to, I'll definitely... I love dark chocolate. Dark chocolate's good for you kids. Well, and dark chocolate and hot sauce go really well together. And this is for both of us. Oh, that's for you. Well, you got two. I got one. What the? F oh, that's that's probably the VHS. Let's see the VHS is first. That's like an oversized ah! VHS. That's so fucking cool. Clamshell. What is it? Secret of Nim. Oh, oh, there you go. Like one of my favorite movies in a fucking Bluth classic. That's amazing. Thank you so much. I love those old clamshells. Yeah, me too. A lot of those cartoons like used to come in that. What? I love that movie. We got one more. This looks like some sort of perler art. Gotta be careful. Multiple perler art. Uh-oh. It's words. Okay. Uh-oh. <laughs> the first... <laughs> The first pearl art just says Danny. <laughs> the Danny. The second one is NES Punk. Oh, that's great. Everyone will love this one. Right there. The third one is Pat in nice uh, purple and pink. And the last one is a little scene of Pac-Man running away from... Is that Blinky? There you go. Nice. That's really cool. Uh-oh, what did you get? Okay, I got a screw. Oh, that's beautiful. I got my name. You got your name, too. <laughs> and I got Little Bitch. Little Bitch? <laughs> got to make the t-shirt. That's awesome. <laughs> that's amazing. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank Re you so Really much. cool. We really appreciate... Uh, again, your and your handwriting is impeccable, Christian. So I don't know what you're, what you're on about. Do not what bend. I am not bending. Uh, if you want to send us some cool gifts, we really appreciate it. I still have one. Oh, you got one more left. Okay. Yes. Hello, Ian. I'm a huge fan of the show, and I always love watching Pat, you, and Frank. Always makes my day. I know you collect vinyls, so here's a gift for you. I know your taste is great with a huge variety. Hope this finds a good home on your, in your collection. Hector Linko. Ooh, nice. It's some ska. Okay. And wait, no. 
I don't you know. Scroll, no, I'm, I'm gonna have to be honest. Not zippers. I, I do not know this, but I'm going to go home and listen to it because there's uh, synthesizer, mellotron, clavinet, and vocal is one of the. It's just Scoffish. one. Scoffish. Uh We've got a, a drum set and a synthetic drum, an adapted slide guitar. Yeah, this is something I'm going to enjoy. So thank you very much. Show the show the, show the picture of it. That, that guy's mug on there. Is that the, is that Scoffish or is that just a random guy? Uh, I don't know. Well, no, there's a uh, Jim Scoffish. Never had to it's knock the last on thing. wood. Jim Scoff. Shut up. Yet. Jim Scoffish <laughs> does the piano and the vocal. Okay. But this 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 appears that it will be awesome. Oh, uh, when Scott was big for that eight month period in '97. Yeah, was it ever really? It it was. Uh, it was sort they of. got they got on Saturday Night Live scrolling those zippers. That's pretty big. Uh, if you want, if we appreciate the gifts as always, including the Danny. The yeah, Danny could be you. good. Uh, if you want to send us gifts, it's uh, uh, CU Podcast, Care Pat Country, PO Box seven six nine five, San Diego, California nine two one six seven. We have a Patreon for the podcast. If you want to see the entire. Uh, podcast in its video entirety. See the entire video in its entirety? Yeah. I guess you can do that. Yeah, it's it works. It's fine. Um, it's patreon.com slash pixelsickle P-X-L-S-I-C-L-E um, And I have a Patreon as well. I have a book coming out. Go to ultimatenes.com for more information. I'll be at Retro Spill Messing. <laughs> I'll just saying that. I'll be at, I'll be at Retropalooza Houston in April. Ian will be haunting my dreams tonight. (laughs) Yay. Ian, any last words for this CU podcast? Uh, No. No. (laughs) They don't call him the best color analyst in the business for nothing. Remember in Major League when he doesn't say anything? Yes. (laughs) The guy's just like, no, nothing to add. All right, we'll see you next time, (laughs) folks. Bye.